Father David Michael Moses, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Been looking forward to this. So Father David Michael Moses, that, that's, that's pretty long. It, it feels weird to call you Father David, but then you've got David Michael. It's still a little long though, but it doesn't sound right if it's just Father David. Just definitely a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. What happened was my, well, first when I was in the womb before I was born, my, my mom never had um, the gender of the child checked. Uh, she just kind of knew in okay. her heart that it was a girl. She just knew. And so I was <laughs> Abigail the, for the entirety of my time in the womb. And then finally I came out and my mom, you know, they, they handed her the baby and she was like, oh, Abigail, Abigail, you're a boy. <laughs> and I didn't have a name for three days, actually. And on the third day, my sister came in and said, like, I'm not going to sleep. It's my older sister until uh-huh. this baby has a name. And my mom and dad are like, well, we're exhausted. So, like, you're going to have to deal with it. And the thing is, my dad always wanted a son named Michael. He loved the name Michael. Okay. And so each of my older brothers, when they were born, he was like, can we please name him Michael? And the problem was my mom had dated a guy in high school named Michael. Oh, there you and go. And she <laughs> thought that if she named one of her sons Michael, and, like, he found out that he, it was like a middle school boyfriend, but she Stop. thought that if he found Found out that she, he would think that she was still into him, so she kept shooting down Michael. And finally, with me, she really loved the name David. My dad uh-huh. was still pushing for Michael, so they combined the two. And I've always gone by both, honestly, David Michael. David like, even Michael. growing up, like swim team, they, there was this one time they were calling our names to like for this event, uh-huh. and they kept saying like David, David. And I was thinking like, gosh, this David kid <laughs> needs to show up. Come on, man, you got to race. And then finally, my dad was like, I think they mean you. Like he goes by David Michael, and so yeah, Father David. I thought about going by father moses mm. but that sounds like you're like 140 years old <laughs> <laughs> and so me showing up being like hey i'm father moses you know doesn't quite fit but even so. saying father david michael kind of because david michael moses has a nice ring to mm, it you know yeah. there's like a rhythm to it i don't know what it is david michael moses you know it, it has a it has a real it, there's a, some snappiness to it and so but what did your friends call you in when you know when you were a teenager? Everybody called me David Michael. David like Michael really knew me. Okay, know, so it's honestly. not too formal. To call you David Michael, Father it's really David not, Michael. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's definitely like I had friends who would call me David Michael Moses. Like they would say all of it just because it flowed. Hey, David Michael exactly. Moses. Exactly, David Michael Moses. You know? Exactly. So I get that. I still get that. Father David Michael Moses. Um, but David Michael is what I went by growing up, and um, so I've just kind of stuck with that. Most people end up calling you Father, anyways, though. That's like, true. Hey, Father, hey, Father. Usually, you're the only priest in a group, so it's not too long. And you are the. Now you're the parochial vicar here at St. Faustina. And how long have you been with us? You've been here since your ordination as a priest, right? Well, you get ordained and then you usually have like a month off kind of. Um, So I did a bunch of weddings for friends and things like that during that month. And then you start, you kind of report to your first assignment a month after that. So I got here July 1st was my first official day last year. So it's been what, 14 months since then. Nice. Yeah. Still kind of fresh. Very fresh. Got yeah. the new car smell on you and everything. Yeah, you can still smell the oil on my hands. Did a bunch of your friends wait for you to become a priest before getting married? Yeah, actually. That so is like awesome. in the year in the year preceding, I had a few friends like, "Hey, could you do you're going to get ordained this day? Could you do the wedding the next weekend?" And then somebody else asked for the next week and I was like, "I already have a wedding for another <laughs> friend. Can we do the next week?" It was crazy to have friends planning the wedding day around like you, you know. Um, but it was just like such a gift to get to get to do that for them and be present in that way. And so this 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 few weeks after ordination were just such a blast, you know. So weddings were the first official thing that you did. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was obviously saying a lot of masses, mm-hmm. hearing a lot of confessions, of course. helping out at different penance services and stuff after that. Um, but yeah, a lot of a lot of weddings too, which is so fun. Now we had, 
uh, we had Deacon Ryan at the time, Father Ryan here. How did we get you instead of him? Is there a, is there some <laughs> kind of a? Are they are they not allowed if you were a, a transitional deacon at a parish? Are they not allowed to to send you? There really aren't a lot of rules, you know. I would say, like in the past, it seems like they usually put guys at different places than they've been, uh-huh. been before. But recently, I actually have seen it's been more common that they actually will put guys in a place that they know is a good fit already. Okay. So I, you know, I think there was a good chance Father Ryan could have come here too, um, for whatever reason. There's there's a, there's a personnel board they call it. Father Dad's on it. Group of priests who make the decisions where guys go, and it's kind of crazy to think about. Like they're sitting in a room. You know, they have a certain number of parishes that are open. They need yes. a guy. Then they have a certain number of priests that need to go somewhere. And they, you know, for example, they think, okay, Deacon Ryan, how about how about he he, he could be at St. Faustina, you know? And it's like suddenly if they put him here, he's gonna have all these experiences with all these people and yes. all these families. Like his life, the context for his life is like being so dictated by that. And then somebody says, ah, actually, how about we put him at Prince of Peace? And then like suddenly his entire future like kind of gets shifted. And you know, it's like, we'll put Father Dave Michael at St. Faustina. It's just like crazy to think like exactly. they're just making decisions, but it, there are huge decisions for what our priesthood looks like those next couple of years. So it's not like one of those situations where in the, say for example, um, like a, an intern at a hospital, they sometimes, if I'm not mistaken, they move them to other hospitals or other places because they feel like that the, you know, the other staff aren't going to, you know, respect them as much when they become a doctor because they knew them as an intern. That that type of thing isn't. I don't think there's no so. rule like that. I mean, I would I would say it's pretty rare to have a guy go to his home parish, like where I grew up. Uh, you know, yes. my home parish um, where people knew me as like a five-year-old. Yeah, like, there were girls in the youth group that I dated. You know, like you may not put a guy back in that parish context. Um, but even, I mean, there's no like set rule against that. Okay. Either. But like, yeah, prophets never, you know, accepted in his own land. Exactly. Maybe you could was... kind of argue that. But um, I know, yeah, if, if Father Ryan had come here, it would have been an awesome experience for him too. It's fact, it's funny because I think people still think that I'm him. <laughs> like, like <laughs> people will come out of mass and be like, hey, how are you? you doing how's your health you know i'm like my my health's good and i think oh they think of father ryan because no he's gone through a lot of health stuff and well you two were the young hip priests uh you know i I mean uh, and and because i i remember seeing you all uh the two of you hanging out at the feast day celebration yeah, 2019 yeah. Saint Faustina feast day. You both had your sunglasses. You're rocking. I'm like, those are two pretty cool, cool young guy. priests. Well, somebody had a um, a Corvette, a convertible that day that they wanted us to drive around. So that was a fun day. <laughs> we took a little spin. Father Ryan was driving the Corvette, <laughs> the top down. So that's awesome. So you mentioned your your home parish. Where is that? Saint Paul the Apostle in Nassau Bay. It's a small little town right across from Nassau, basically on the water, and that's where my family uh, lived growing up. So not my, too far from here. About it's like 45. an hour from here. Yeah, okay. 45 an hour. It's not bad at all. Yeah. And have you been there all your life? Pretty much. I mean, I was born in Aransas Pass, small little county outside of Corpus Christi, Texas. Okay. But we moved here for my dad's work when I was four. So Houston's pretty much all I've all I've ever known. Do you have family still there? Not a lot. No. Pretty much everybody has has moved has here. Has moved here to Houston. Yeah. So all three of my brothers are still in Houston. I've and I have two sisters in Austin. So nobody's too far, which is pretty nice. We have cousins here and stuff too. So how many brothers and sisters do you have? There are six of us. Six of us. Okay. I'm number five out of the six, which is a good place to be because by the time your parents have uh, have their fifth kid, they just don't care that much anymore. <laughs> you kind of can do whatever you want to do. So yeah, it, it was it was nice to be number five. Number five. So the first are, if you don't mind asking, 
boys or yeah Leo is, or is uh, my sister Lauren she okay. lives in Austin she's married has three kids uh, the next is a boy my brother he's married lives in Leak City close to Nassau Bay uh, another brother also lives there he has three kids married and then his older sister who's married who lives in Austin near my other sister she's getting ready to have her first which is pretty cool the first kid nice and then I have a younger brother who's a merchant marine working on a boat up in uh, New Jersey right now so for the next like five or six months I'll be on that boat Wow, that's cool. Working, yeah. So, growing up, were you the most likely to become a priest? Did that's, your parents look at you? That's a think? good question. You know, it's interesting because uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I, I had an older brother, Martin, the one who's married now, has three kids. Um, everybody kind of thought he might be the priest. Like I heard that growing up, like oh, maybe Martin will be a priest. Um, and you know, he had a deep spiritual life, and I mean, it was altar server growing up. But met this good Catholic girl, obviously is married now. Um, so I think it, it maybe came a little bit out of left field when I was I was kind of discerning growing up. How old did how old were you when you first had the thoughts of becoming a priest? Yeah, you know they they like we do here. They pray for vocations at mass for an increase in vocations. And even when I was like ten or eleven as an altar server, I would think like, hmm, I wonder what that means, what that would look like. And after mass, people would say like, Oh, you'd be such a cute little priest, you know. And I'd be like, <laughs> I like girls. <laughs> like that's <laughs> that's not gonna happen. Um, so it really wasn't until I was sixteen and went on a silent retreat for the weekend. It was the Ignatian spiritual exercises that I really felt um, just in the silence of the prayer. Like the Lord saying, it might be you, it might be you I'm calling. And at one point the priest even said like, hey, this is just in a talk. You should choose the vocation that will make you a saint. And that hits people, obviously it's going to hit people different ways, but that kind of hit me like, oh, that's priesthood. You know, I didn't know why I thought that, but that's just kind of how I am. If I want to be a saint, like I'll be a saint as a priest. And um, so I was talking with the priest. Uh, you have like a one hour window of spiritual direction where you can talk to them on that silent retreat. And okay. I just told him, Hey, I'm kind of thinking about priesthood, kind of feeling called, but I really like girls. I don't know what to do about that. And he's, he laughed and he said, okay, that's totally normal. That's fine. Um, the Lord still might be calling you. That might be something he's asked you to give up in marriage. So I um, need to take that seriously. So I started going to daily mass, praying um, a lot in adoration after that and felt a lot of confirmation. Um, just to kind of continue to go deeper, you know, like in any relationship, right? Like when you're dating somebody, you kind of, it's a natural progression of yes. attraction. You keep going and, you know, sermons, a lot, a lot of ways, the same, the same, you know, you kind of feel something and you kind of continue to go, to go deeper. So that's kind of when I first felt it. You, did you have a girlfriend at the time? So right after that retreat, I got a girlfriend. I don't know if that was great timing. But I was like thinking about priesthood and she knew that, you know, I was honest. But also she was she was great, really cool. She's my youth group. She was solid. And so we dated for about a year and a half. Yeah, right around that time, like 16, 17, 18. Was she like your first girlfriend or you had a, you had a couple of girlfriends before I dated before a girl before that. It wasn't for very long. Um, that was the first, like probably more serious relationship. Yeah, yeah. So not long, meaning a few months? Yeah, couple, yeah. Okay. That's all it was. Yeah. And then this girl that you were, you were dating right after that retreat, before you became a priest, that was about a year, you said? About a year and a half. Year and yeah, a half. Yeah, we okay. known each other for a while before then. So yeah. what happens there? How, how does that happen where you... 
go from having a girlfriend to becoming a priest. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, we dated for about a year and a half and it was good. You know, it was a very, it was a good, solid Catholic relationship. You know, most of what we did was was church stuff, went to daily mass together a lot. Um, but in like my personal prayer, I felt the Lord, you know, kind of saying, I'm calling you to something more. You know, particularly with like, I want to help people. I want to help you with my life. And I knew the Lord had given me, given me a good life, a lot of resources, a lot of opportunities. And I wanted to make sure I used those for others. And um, I just thought, what more could I do for somebody than literally give them Jesus uh-huh. um, through, through, through the mass and, and literally forgive their sins in the sacrament of confession in the person of Christ. Like what more could I do for somebody? And I'm having experienced like the grace of those sacraments myself. And I really wanted to be an instrument of that for others. And so um, that desire continued to grow. And I eventually, um, you know, I talked to a couple guys and they said I should really talk to the vocations director, the priest who's kind of in charge of vocations for the, the archdiocese. And at the time it was Father Dat, our pastor. So I remember the first time I called him and I made an appointment to go in and meet with him. And, um, you know, he had a great sense when I was talking to him just about everything I was feeling, you know, um, okay. that, you uh, you know, he felt like, yeah, let's, let's keep moving. You know, like let's, let's start the application process and kind of see, you know, discernments and just about taking the next step. Right. So uh, I remember sitting down with the girlfriend in the front yard, you know, my parents' house. Yeah, how does that conversation go? <laughs> what, at what point did you tell her this? Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that was, I think I told her a little bit before I talked to father dad. Um, it was probably a, a month or two before that. Um, and I mean, like I said, she knew I was discerning and, okay. um, and it wasn't like a huge surprise, but it was tough for sure. I remember we sat in the front yard and she was crying and, Aww. um, yeah. And I, you know, I, I tell people sometimes loving God means giving up other things you love, you know, and that can be part of it. And so I just, I just explained it all to her and, uh, it was difficult, but we were able to, you know, stay friends after that. Did she, and, um, did she try to talk you out of it? Like maybe you could just become a deacon. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's, yeah, that's exactly what she said. That's exactly. <laughs> Good job, Ernie. <laughs> um, yeah, why can't you, why can't you be a deacon? And being a deacon is a beautiful call, you know, but you got to do what the Lord is asking. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, uh, you don't just want to like try to have the best of both worlds or something. You know, that's not uh-huh. a, being a deacon is a specific call, a permanent deacon and marriage is a specific call and priests are just a specific call, you know, and, um, so you want to make sure you do what the Lord asks. So definitely a tough conversation to have. Um, and it's actually kind of funny because probably what, like, like I said, we stayed friends. We talked every once in a while, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. And then when I was a deacon, I, I get a call from her and her name pops up on my phone. And I was like, well, this is, this is wild. Like, what's this about? I answered and she said, Hey, how you doing? And talked for a minute. She said, Hey, I'm, I'm looking for a priest for my wedding. And, um, I was wondering, I'm having a hard time finding one. Could you help me find one? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, I, I, I know some guys, I know some guys who could help. She was getting married up in uh, Chicago. So I was able to make some calls and find somebody to help with their wedding. And, and then she invited all of us to the wedding, which is really nice. And, um, I probably would have gone if I, could have, but it was family weekend at the seminary. So I needed to be there. Okay. Um, and so all these guys had their families there and it was like, everybody's like, Hey, did Michael, where's your family? And like, well, they're all at my ex-girlfriend's <laughs> wedding in Chicago. So. Oh, so she's close with your whole family. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Cause we dated for, you know, long enough where she, she knew my parents really well and my, some of my brothers and sisters. So yeah. That uh, must've been a very sp- awkward conversation. Her asking you to hook her up with a priest to, for, <laughs> you know, it wasn't to get that bad. It wasn't that, I mean, I was certainly surprised to get a call from her, but I was glad she felt like she could call and glad I could help, you know? So is there still some awkwardness when you talk to her? Um, like I said, we don't really talk a lot now. Um, but I mean, there's always, I guess some level of awkwardness, right? Um, but we both are very, very happy in our vocations and I feel very strong that the Lord worked it all out, you know, and was, was with us along the way. So, yeah. 
What about your that previous girlfriend? The one before? Do you still um, speak with I her? I did see her at a wedding. They both have actually attended weddings I've officiated at oh, a different time. Okay. So I remember I saw her at a wedding reception. We talked some. Were they hiding in the back? And- <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, I did, did talk to her for a while too. And um, yeah, that one's, I mean, we didn't date for that long. So it's pretty chill. Yeah. Do you actually notice the the part of the mass or the part of the ceremony where they lean over to whoever they're with? Yeah, I used to date that priest. <laughs> it may be a conversation they have at some point, but I don't notice if they do. Yeah. Do you ever think that while you're, you know, during the ceremony or, or anything? I mean, you know, people like to talk, right? People like to talk. So who knows? Who knows what they say? So you become, you, you talk to your, your girlfriend at the time, you break the news to her. And then what happens next? Yeah, so I'm I'm in conversation with Father Dat, you know, about applying applying to the seminary, which is a pretty mm-hmm. lengthy process, a lot of things that you do. And um, things are kind of moving forward and I get halfway through the process and as I'm praying and everything, I'm just getting really nervous again. Like, and how long is this process? So it's less about the length and more about like how much you're getting okay. done. So you got to write an autobiography, like 10 pages, basically just describing your life and your family, you do a big psychological evaluations, like 500 questions. Um, a lot of other things you submit, like references from people, academic stuff you've got to submit, that kind of thing. So um, I get about halfway through that process, probably like a month into filling out a lot of this stuff. And I just get really nervous. Um, again especially about the celibacy thing you know that was it you know the big part of my discernment it's like you know as a young guy you know 16 17 18 it sounds not bad to like say mass sounds cool to officiate weddings sounds cool to hear confessions be called father where we're we're clerics but like the idea of like never being able to date and get married is like kind of insane yeah it's like oh my gosh that's like the thing that i kind of want most in this life and then i'm a lot of what i'm doing is like oriented toward it's kind of insane to think about like that not even being a possibility anymore you know um, and so for me, the question was always like, not so much, could I do it? Like, I felt like God had given me the capacity to uh-huh. do it, but like, am I going to be happy? You know? And so like, is it, I want to make sure this is what God wants that I'm not just like being lonely for nothing, you know? So, yes. um, and, and that's a limited view of celibacy. There's more I could say, but as a young guy, that's kind of what you're looking at, right? Like you're, that's all you're focused on as a young guy. Yeah. Like you're, you know, you're bio, you're not biologically attracted to callers, right? You're biologically attracted to girls. Like that's what you're much more drawn to, you know? So, um, halfway through the application process, I just got nervous about the, uh, just nervous about the celibacy thing. Like, I don't know if I can, if I can do this. And, um, so I read at a certain point that you could ask God for like a sign. Like that's what he wanted. Cause that was the main thing for me. Like I felt like I could do it, but I wanted to make sure it's what God wanted. So I started praying for a dove. Like I was like, God, if you want me to go into seminary, send me a dove. And so when I talked to father dad about the nervousness, he had said, Hey, how about you come in the office and talk to me? And so I'm driving downtown to talk to father dad and I'm kind of looking around for doves and I see some birds, but I don't really know if they're doves. And I was like, I don't know what a dove, I'm not sure if I know what a dove looks like. Like I should have picked something more obvious. So I get there and I'm talking to father dad and I remember there was like a branch right behind him in like the, behind the window in his office. And I was thinking like, man, if a dove flies in there and lands right there, then I'm, I'm, I'm good to go. Uh-huh. That did not happen. I just talked to him and he said, you know, you should really be feeling peace. If it's from the Holy spirit, you shouldn't feel anxiety. You should feel peace. Um, so he gave me a great piece of advice. You know, at the time my, my uh, education was kind of weird. I was homeschooled till I was 14 
um, kind of after eighth grade. And then I started full-time college classes. Um, so it's called dual credit classes essentially is how we were able to get in. It's as a high school, you can take college class classes, but my mom got special permission for me to take, um, a bunch of those really early basically. So I was full-time college. And so at the age of yeah, 14. 14. Yeah. Yeah. So I did that for two years at the junior college, got my associates in biotechnology and then um, transferred to the University of Houston, Clear Lake, which is like a smaller university near my parents' house uh-huh. um, for two more years and then got my bachelor's in the humanities pre-law. Um, so it was never really the plan to like be done with college that uh-huh. early. It's just kind of taking the next step. That's how it worked out. Were so, all of your siblings homeschooled? At some point. Yeah. Yeah. So my mom... Um, kind of was able to pretty have a pretty good sense of when we would do best as homeschoolers and when we would do best like in a private or public school. So we all went in at different times. I was the only one who never went to like a private or public school and just kind of went, went straight to college. So what was um, that like? How did it feel? Did you feel like you're missing something? Do you feel like you got a better education? How do you, how do you, no, that's a good, good question. I, um, so again, like being homeschooled, I enjoyed a lot. Uh, I would wake up really early, like 4.35 and um, just get all my work done, you know, before 10 o'clock, 11 and spend the rest of the day working on other stuff that I enjoy, music uh-huh. and videos and stuff. Um, so I enjoyed being homeschooled. We also did a lot of social things, some yes. with other homeschoolers, but a lot of sports, a lot of church stuff. Um, so my mom was bigger on trying to kind of keep us connected. She knew the social aspect was important. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that uh, homeschoolers, they have groups. Yeah, that they meet yeah. up with all the time. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think, oh, when you're homeschooled, you're just at home all the time. No, the, no, the, yeah, we you were, get groups of homeschoolers together and do a bunch of activities and stuff like that. Yeah, we had we had a lot of, a lot of things that were going on, and and you naturally with other homeschoolers during the day because they're not in school either, so you can do other things. But after school, you know, did a lot of sports and again church stuff and things like that. So, um, my mom was just always looking for ways to like challenge us, and because she knew I was pretty self motivated, she thought, hey, how about, how about you take a start taking college classes and see how that goes. So my eighth grade year, second semester, I took one college class and uh, it went pretty well, you know, and I made an A in the class. And so nice. they able to let me continue to, to do that and take more. And it definitely was kind of, I mean, it was obvious I was 14. I look young for my age anyway. So I probably looked like 12 or 11 <laughs> and I'd be sitting in class day one. And sometimes the teachers would be like, how old are you? <laughs> you know? We've got a boy genius like, hey, here. 14, you know, and um, we're just in the hall. People would stare. They just come up to me like, in the cafeteria and be like, dude, how old are you? You know? And so it led to some fun conversations. Um, uh, but I definitely enjoyed, you know, being able to be challenged in that way to have more freedom mm-hmm. to kind of focus on certain things. Um, so again, it was never like the plan, like, okay, you're going to at 14, start college and be done by 18. It just, just happened. Yeah. I was just kind of taking the next step. Um, and so naturally because of that, you know, I was taking, um, pre-law classes and things like that i thought about law school oh you know? really um, what kind of law i i'm just kind of interested in patent law i think intellectual property stuff kind of interested me um i mean i definitely would have made that move as like a career decision just to support my family support the church uh-huh. you know it wasn't something i would say i was like super passionate about internally but um so you know i i took an lsat prep class law school admissions test prep class okay. And, and that went pretty well. And so I just thought like, hey, I'll just take the LSAT, see what happens. So this is December, about the time, uh, a couple months before I talked to Father Dad. And I kind of took the LSAT just kind of for the heck of it. Um, and I scored well enough where I thought like, oh, maybe I should actually like, you know, just look into this to give yeah give God some options. So I applied um, to a lot of different schools. And the ones I got accepted that I, that, that I was looking at most seriously were University of Houston Law Center, uh, Baylor, 
I got a, a partial scholarship out to their law school and Tulane. Um, and so, you know, kind of having that on the table, you know, I wanted to be available to the Lord just to say, Hey, you know, what would you like? Um, what would you like for me? And so I actually went to the admitted student state university of Houston and put my deposit down there at their law center, just to kind of have that, have that option available. So at that point, father dad gave me some really good advice. Okay. He yeah. Said, going back to that meeting yeah, with the, with the branch back. behind him and everything. Exactly. Yeah. So he, he, I'm telling him about, I'm kind of feeling anxiety about the celibacy thing and just nervousness. And he said, well, you should really feel peace. So how about you isolate your discernment? Stop actually thinking about disseminary and just discern law school. Just think about that and see what God says about Mm -hmm. that. And that's really good advice when you're discerning stuff, especially lots of good things. Law school's good. Marriage is good. Priesthood's good. Just isolate one. It's very hard to be like, God, I have all these options. What do you want? It's hard to kind of get clarity about that. Um, so you kind of just pick one and say, is this what you want? And so, um, started to really, you know, look at law school seriously, what that would be like. Um, that was really, really great advice. Very good advice. Cause you get, you get choice paralysis mm-hmm. when you've got too many options to look at. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I, I spent that next month or two just praying a lot, um, about like law school. Mm-hmm. And what I found was that like, I, I didn't, I wasn't really feeling called to law school and like priesthood kept coming back. Right. So even though I wasn't trying to pray about it, it was coming in. Um, but with that also was like the, the fear from before about like celibacy, like, okay, I'm still, that's still there. Like, I just need to know that this is what you want. You uh-huh. know? And so I was finally praying at a holy hour. Um, it's kind of cool. My, my home parish, we only have one other, one other priest who's been ordained. Okay. Um, and I was the second one. And uh, I always tell people that if we get a third from the parish, then the diocese sends us a free toaster. Right? That's the, <laughs> is that's there the a model. big gap between the two of you? Um, so that's, what's kind of interesting is, so at that point I was preparing to, you know, you know, enter seminary and he was about to be ordained a priest. Okay. So he was a transitional deacon at the time and they did this holy hours home parish and it was the night before his ordination. So at the time I wasn't even thinking about that, but it's kind of interesting. It was kind of a passing of the torch, right? Like his last day, um, you know, before he became a priest in my home parish was kind of the day that was really pivotal for me going into seminary. So um, I was praying at that holy hour yes. in my home parish and again, asking God, you know, send me a dove. Like, I just, I just want to know this is what you want. You want me to take this next step and I'm willing to, to do whatever, just send me a dove. And I remember even thinking like, uh, you know, blessed mother, like crash a dove through this window or something, just make uh-huh. something happen. <laughs> and right then I looked up and realized that the huge painted glass window above the altar is a dove, like a giant dove as a symbol oh, wow. of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of staring right at you. It's a pretty intense dove too, actually. I like it a lot because it's it's kind of hardcore. Um, and so right then I felt like, oh, okay. Like, Where's this again? This is at St. Paul's, my home parish. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And that um, dove has always been there. Well, that's what's interesting. I was talking to my dad about this the other day and he said, you didn't look at that dove that much because you were always altar serving. Like you were always helping with the liturgy. So you were either at the side of the church where the servers sit or you were underneath the dove, like serving at the altar. You wouldn't have looked at that dove it that often. It was always there, but you... Dennis. Wow. Yeah, exactly. That's it was fantastic. always there. We didn't really see it, you know? Um, yeah, which is like a, just a, so true about vocation, right? It's always there, but you don't always see it until maybe you have to look at it from like a fresh perspective. And so, yeah, right then I looked up and I realized like, you know, I think some people might say, well, it wasn't a real dove, but it's like, I didn't know what a real dove really looked like from like a <laughs> pigeon or something, but I knew that was a dove. God spoke to me in a way that was like very clear that I could understand. And um, of course, when I saw that, I was followed by a lot of peace. Like, oh, okay. Okay, Lord. Why did you choose a dove? 
I don't even know. Like, I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't have like a history with doves or something. In fact, we like to go dove hunting. Like, we kill doves. Like, I don't know why I would have thought uh, about a dove. You didn't want to choose something that, naturally. that never shows up in Houston. Like, <laughs> something that's just totally okay. This particular bird is native to South Africa. <laughs> God, show me one of those if you really exactly, want to become yeah. a person. You didn't want to do that. Like if, if I see a pterodactyl, <laughs> then yeah. I'll just I'll just go into seminary. No problem. Um but yeah, that was pretty clear for me. So I called the vocation director mm-hmm. um, pretty soon after that and I said, Hey, you know, I think I'm I don't really want to go to law school. I really want to be a priest. So I'm ready to move forward, see what happens. Um and it's funny because you think like you think seminaries you think discernment's kind of done at that point, right? You're like, okay, we're good, but like uh-huh. then you're just getting started. You know, that's just the beginning. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. So this yeah. was after your conversation with your girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. So this this point was like six or seven months after that. Yeah. Okay. So you had already broken up. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to give myself good space, you know, to discern it well. And we actually went on Do a trip. Do you think she was still kind of hanging hanging on to the hope <laughs> of you coming back? I don't want to say too much about what she was feeling. You know, we may have had some conversations. Okay. <laughs> no, it's like, are you sure? Are sure. you really sure? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, anyway, you're saying you, you you went on a trip? Yeah, we went to the Holy Land for two weeks um, around that time. And uh, that was really confirming for me too, just to, you know, be where Jesus, where Jesus lived, you know, is beautiful. And to literally walk in his footsteps was really confirming too of my, my discernment. And that's when you knew pretty much. Yeah, I was ready to take that next step. So Father Dad helped me finish the application process. um, And we got everything in. It was kind of last minute, I guess, to finish it. But because he had known me from before, I think he felt pretty comfortable. And um, I was off to seminary. So that's when you made the final text or call to the (laughs) ex-girlfriend? Just to... No, no, no. I think at that point, hopefully she knew. She pretty much knew. I mean, she's in a good place now. She's married she and is. everything. So, yeah, uh, doing very well, doing very well. Um, but yeah, at that point, hopefully it was the door was closed. <laughs> so let's let's move. Let's double back first to your, your childhood. Mm-hmm. Did, did you have any? So you're homeschooled. What this what decision was made there that you wouldn't go to a is there a reason why you wouldn't mm. go to a, a you know a, a private school or a public school as compared to your brothers and sisters? Yeah, my parents could see from an early age I had no social skills, so they <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> they decided to homeschool me. No, no, no. Um, so we were all homeschooled at some point, yes. right? Early on, I think yes. my parents just thought like, hey, because my mom and my dad had the resources mm-hmm. to do that, it would be helpful to have us at home, and they could give us kind of a comp- comprehensive. Catholic moral education, you know, along with everything else. Um, but my older sister went in right before she was a senior in high school, which is actually kind of funny. So like mm. they, my mom had all her grades from homeschooling and she gave them to the school, but she didn't think like the school would really care. Well, the school took all of those grades, right? And like f- factored them in with her grades from their school. And she would have been the valedictorian of like the high school really? if it had been for the fact that my mom my mom gave her all C's in PE because she didn't like to go outside <laughs> which is funny because now she's like super into fitness and super healthy but at the time she didn't like to like run or anything so my mom gave her C's and so that kind of messed up her GPA just enough where she wasn't top of her class imagine it was because of PE I know exactly PE was the downfall so she went into public school just like right before basically okay you know? she finished um, and then she went off to UT. Then my older brother, I think it was like 10th grade. One was eighth grade. One was seventh grade. My younger brother was fifth grade. 
um, that they went into private or public schools. I was the only one who um, never went that route. And there's no decision, like there was no time when your parents said, let's try them for a year or something like that. Not really, no. In fact, to go back to your earlier question, like, um, again, it was very natural. Um, I don't think we ever closed that door. It was just like, hey, try college. And then college was just working out. So we just kind of kept going. And maybe there was a... Uh, you know, obviously you miss things. Anytime you do one thing, you miss other things, you know? Um, but I, I still went to school dances and stuff with people. I still was involved in that. Yeah. You had a um, social life. Yeah. I still had a social life. I was around people and definitely there's things that you miss. There's also a lot of things I got to do that other kids get it, didn't get to do. I'm very happy with my path and very thankful for it. And I, I, I would definitely do it again. Now, your past girlfriends, were they homeschooled too? Did they go to public, no, private school? No, one went to uh, IWA, the Catholic school. Okay. Uh, one, was, one was public school, one went to IWA downtown. It was funny because I actually went back and set a mass there for the students and told the story, you know, the girlfriend <laughs> who went there because I had gone to one of their dances. Is this the is this the one that you broke up with? Before, yeah, yeah. I'd oh. gone to one of their dances and I think she was she was like the homecoming queen, you know, so um, I kind of told that story during the homily. It was pretty funny. That's cool. That's cool. So let's talk about your family, if you don't mind. Yeah. So it seems as if, based off of the the videos and stuff that you put online, that your 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 family's pretty well to do. You've got a hunting property. You've got they've got a lake house. Um, did that kind of factor into your, you know, discernment to become a priest? Thinking, oh, I want to keep a certain lifestyle, or or did it just not matter at all? to you i think um certainly being able to grow up in a family that was like was stable was, yes. was a huge gift right to be able yes. to have that kind of that kind of space um to like discern discern well you know like uh god can certainly work through every kind of environment a guy grows up in um i was thankful to have the one that i did um but i think yeah when you go into seminary you recognize like hey there's no guarantees about what my future is going to look like you know you really want to be hopefully leaving everything behind to follow Christ, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, uh, you know, I felt like I had that coming in, you know, like, okay, Lord, whatever, whatever it is that you want, whatever my life looks like, you never know where you're going to go, what's going to, what it's going to look like. Um, so definitely thankful for my family growing up, but kind of ready for whatever the Lord had. I love how supportive they are of your, you know, of, of you, at, uh, of your priesthood. They, I mean, especially here at Faustina, they, you know, they, they're really supportive what um, what point did you tell your parents about your discernment to become a priest? Yeah. So I remember my mom, so this was pr- right after the silent retreat. I think I came back from that retreat and I told my mom like, hey, I'm kind of thinking about priesthood. And I thought, like my parents, super Catholic, very supportive of the church. I thought they would both say like, oh, this is awesome. We have a son who's uh-huh. a priest. Instead, they were both like um, a little bit you know, kind of cautious and, and, and my More mom reserved towards, yeah, my mom was like, okay, wow. Um, how do you feel about the celibacy thing? Like you can't get married, you know? And you think that's what they thought about number one. Yeah. He's had a couple well, of girlfriends. Does, and, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. And, and again, especially my mom, it was out of like love and care for me. Like of she didn't want me to be like lonely my whole life, you know? Um, so she's, and I remember her telling me, I just want you to be happy, you know? And so a lot of love and care for me um, and concern. Right. When I told my dad, he, it was funny. He said, well, I always wanted a son who was a priest, but I didn't want it to be you. <laughs> really? And I didn't even know at the time what that meant. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. I was like, interesting. I don't know. And then it wasn't until I like a little bit later, I circled back to him. I said, Hey, when you said that, what did you mean? And he said, he just felt like we connected a lot, you know, and he kind of felt like if I was going to be a priest, he would kind of lose me. 
Uh-huh. And um, what's kind of fascinating, I think the opposite's been true. Like I think me being a priest has brought me closer to my family in a lot of ways, you know, that I think has been really positive that maybe if I was as, as a lawyer, you know, I might not have that same connection with them as I do, you know? Um, Cause yeah, certainly as a celibate man, those relationships with your families are really important relationships to cultivate, you know, and special to mm-hmm. carry through your life. So what kind of um, access do you have to your family now that you're a priest? Yeah. So because I'm a Dawson priest, right. You yes. know, with Houston, the kind of one thing you're probably guaranteed is you're going to be in Houston the rest of your life. You know, so okay. the fact that I have family here means I'll probably never be more than an hour and a half, two hours away from them as a diocesan priest. I'm, we're not like in a religious order. That's going to yes. like control our interactions with our families, mm-hmm. you know? So obviously it'd be inappropriate. Like if I was <laughs> like living at my parents' house and like commuting in, in the mornings, to the parish, that would be a problem. And yes. it might probably be weird if they were driving over here for daily mass every day um so there's a healthy separation you know just Mm -hmm. like you would have if you were a married man um but you know my day off about every other week i'll go home on a friday and um stay there in the evening come back in the morning and i get to see them and i'll get to see my other brothers and my nieces and my nephews a lot of that factor into your decision to become a diocesan priest yeah your family you know i didn't think about it my family too much specifically in terms of my discernment long term a lot of it was just kind of prayer, like, Lord, where are you calling me? And I went to visit a religious community for five days up in, um, I think it was up in Nebraska. And it was a it was a great order. And it was, I, I enjoyed my time there, but I didn't feel like when I left, like, oh, I need to be here. It was just kind of like, oh, okay. And the diocese for me always was like, I did have a real draw, like to be, you know, part of like the church in Houston, like the people here and like to be a priest for this land. You know, I always felt that. So the fact that I was close to my family was just kind of a nice bonus. And the Lord provides what you need because it has been a huge gift to be close to my family. And I'm super thankful that throughout my life, you know, a good chunk of it, I should have a lot of family members to like be able to to talk to and support and be supported by. So you're at this point of you deciding to become a priest, you're discerning how much time are you given to pretty much be, you know, after that, that's that talk with father dad, how much time passes before you move forward to the and next And actually steps. go to the seminary. Yes. It was probably like eight months. Okay. Eight months. And yes. what were you doing during that time? So I finished out my senior year of, of, of college, graduated. Then we had this summer, basically. Um, we took that trip. So a lot of that was just like prayer and preparation and just kind of getting everything ready, you know, to kind of move forward. And what do you what do you say is the that that one point where you say okay this is it one hundred percent you know you tell your family you tell the ex girlfriend you tell all your friends this is going to happen one hundred percent what point did that I'm happen? going to seminary yes you know I don't know if there was a specific moment um, like when I after the Dove experience I felt pretty comfortable with uh-huh. Father Dad finished the application process but a lot of sermon it is kind of taking that next step you know taking that next step and I certainly have had a lot of peace about. You know, when I got accepted to the seminary, I felt peace about that and felt peace about going and trying that first year and see how it went. So getting accepted into the seminary, you said that there's a whole bunch of requirements, the essay with, you know, your life story. What else do they require you to submit? Yes, yeah, so the essay, that first psycholo- that, that full psychological evaluation, references from like a few people in your church, a letter from your pastor, um, a lot of academic stuff. They wanted all that for their records and also for the college that we were going to attend. Did they ever um, show you the results of the psychological evaluation? <laughs> you know, we talked to her about it. Um, the main, about, to the psychologist about it. The main thing I remember is um, 
I've I've minimized it now, but it's still there sometimes. I have like a speech impediment called rhoticism, where it's pretty hard to sometimes say R controlled vowels. Like even this interview, there's a couple of times I've said my R's kind of like W's, and so like if I talk a little bit too fast or I'm kind of tired, like it comes out more. That I've was never the, noticed that. You never noticed? Never yes. noticed. Okay, it. I'm glad. I'm glad. I've I've worked pretty hard the last few years to minimize as much as possible because when I was like in middle school, it was pretty bad. It's pretty. What rough. does it sound like? <laughs> if you don't mind. Yeah, like instead of Rudy, it's like Woody. Okay. Hey, Woody. Okay, so like the R's get softened. So um, it sounds like a little kid. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Um, so like hard work. If I'm not careful, it's hard work. Like basically. Okay. So I have to. You kind sound of, like you're from a certain. I'm. I'm, I'm trying to pinpoint what what particular area of the United States people speak like that? <laughs> Some people have asked if I was from Boston. Boston, maybe. I got that when I was younger. And I was listening to a video the other day of a guy from, who was some part of the UK he was from. And it sounded a lot like how I used to used to talk. Um, so all the time I would get people asking like where I was from, like in middle school and early high school. Because you had that impediment. Yeah, yeah. Um, which was fine. You know, girls kind of thought it was cute and they thought I had an accent, you know, and that. And then actually funny when I entered seminary, <laughs> then one of the guys told me this later, one of the guys I entered with, he heard I was from Nassau Bay. Uh-huh. And he thought that was like some place in the Bahamas and I had an accent. <laughs> he was like, yeah, Nassau Bay. He's from David Michael from Nassau Bay. He thought I was like some foreign guy that they brought in, which is kind of cool. Um, so, so you did you is this a lifelong thing that you've been working on seeing a speech therapist um, so it's it's interesting because it was never it was noticeable but it was never so bad like people couldn't understand me so I remember we went to a place and it was uh, it was one of the places at the schools like the public schools and we pay taxes so we could still use the resources of course but they said it wasn't ba- they evaluated me and said it wasn't bad enough to where like I should actually take one of the spots because there were kids who like could not talk oh so, yeah so um, I didn't really do much more about it until seminary which is when the psychologist said like hey I might want to just work on that and um, and, and that came up the, in the evaluation yeah yeah I just mentioned that because it was like the main thing she mentioned she was like so you have a speech impediment I was like yeah, I guess so. Um, and it was funny because when I got to seminary, the priest there who got the psychological was like, he got her comments and he was like, I think you're fine. Like, I, I can't hear. I don't, I don't think it's a problem. Yeah, I never would have you know. Um, and then the next priest, like a year later, said that he actually did think it was a problem. So then I went and did see a speech therapist for a while at the seminary. And, um, you know, the main thing was just me understanding what words I need to concentrate on a little bit better. And um, once I kind of figured out what I need to be doing, it helped a lot to where now it's, it's mostly been, mostly been minimized. So, yeah. Anything else pop up in that psychological evaluation? I'm, I'm sure there were things, um, but I mean, those, those tests are pretty incredible, but that was the only thing I really remember us talking about a lot, but it's funny you bring that up because I've been thinking recently, I probably have like, like rights to that. Like I, I kind of want to go back and ask and go look at it and see, you know, kind of you learn a little bit more about yourself. I'm sure I'm at a, hopefully I'm at a place like, you know, mature, I'm mature enough now where I could take whatever it was, but what yeah. do you, th- what, what, are th- what types of questions do you remember from that test? It was stuff like when you get angry, do you want to break things? Um, she asked me to draw a picture of like a happy family. And then you do like the ink blot test, of course, okay. where like you say whatever you see in the in the, the ink. That kind of stuff, you know, was interesting. There were no points where she was like, 
Hmm. <laughs> mm, not that I remember. No, no, I don't. Is it, do you get extremely conscious when they do that test? Um, not really. I mean, I didn't feel feel too crazy. Um, if a lot a lot of that stuff, honestly, it was like, okay, God, this is me. If you're calling me, work it out. If it's not me, you know, work it out. You know, so I was never too nervous about it. So after that test. And then after all, uh, after the letters and everything, you submit all of that. Is there a final interview? Is there a final meeting? Yeah, so you hopefully have been talking with the vocation director a lot. So he knows you pretty well. And then you come before the admissions board, which is like a few sisters and a few priests. And they ask you a bunch of questions on these different things. Was father dad on that board? Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know if he votes or not. But um, yeah, and then they vote basically to send you on or not. And I went downstairs and they came out and said like, okay, you're good to go. Like you're accepted. Um, and then the Cardinal then has to sign off on that. Um, yeah. So I, they vote and then the Cardinal gets to vote and then he, and then you're accepted. Um, and then you get accepted to the archdiocese. And then you also get accepted to the seminary that you're going to go, which for me was going to be in Dallas for a couple of years. Um, so you get accepted there um, and then you're kind of ready to move forward. So how long of a time are you given before you move to Dallas from that, from when they told you, okay, I'm going to, you're going to Dallas. How much lead time are you given? I don't even remember. Honestly, it was kind of a blur. Like it depends on the guy. So because I kind of had taken a break from the application process, it was probably like a month for me, but there's some guys who get accepted like, you know, eight months in advance and they kind of know where they're going. So why were you sent to Dallas? Is there a decision that was made that you know, could they have sent you somewhere else or do they just send everybody from our archdiocese yeah, to so Dallas? To start out, generally you go to Dallas um, or Louisiana. Okay. One of those two, there's two collegiate seminaries there basically. So um, I don't know what their criteria is. I've heard things, but I wouldn't want to <laughs> make an assessment on it. I do remember Father Dad telling me they would probably going to send me to Louisiana. And then really? for whatever reason, when it came out, I was going to Dallas, which is fascinating because like, you know, you, that's a whole different set of relationships and yes. people you're going to meet and people are going to talk to in a different context for formation. So, okay. So when you go to Dallas, are you alone or are you with a group of other guys? Yeah. So there were probably seven or eight guys from, from Houston who went out to study there and in the house total, there were probably 90 guys from a lot of different, um, a lot of different dioceses all over the United States pretty much. Did you guys know each other? The, that group from Houston? Previously, um, we had a couple of meetings together, basic orientation stuff, but didn't know each other too well. Yeah. And then there were guys who already were at the seminary from Houston too, who had been in a few years. So it ended up being a pretty good group of us. Was Father Ryan with you there in that group? So he went to Louisiana. Okay. Yeah. So that's okay. kind of strange. I didn't really get to know him very well until I, I came back to Houston for, for seminary. Um, and then our paths kind of crossed again. How about Deacon Joseph? Deacon Joseph came in the second year. Yeah. So you were all already in there. Yeah. So I was a year ahead of him. So when he came in, yeah, we got to, I knew him over that summer before he entered because we just had hung out a couple of times and things like that. But how, um, how about yeah. Father Matthew? Father Matthew Suniga. I think he was, uh, I don't think I knew him till I came to St. Mary's in Houston. I think he was, was two years ahead of me. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're in, Dallas and you're taking college classes. Are you taking law classes? Is that what, was that your, 
was that the course that you decided to to pursue? Because you said you had thought of yeah, no. So the way you the way it works is if you already have a college degree, you do just a lot of philosophy, basically. Okay. If you don't have a college degree, you do four years of college and get a degree in philosophy. So because I had my degree, it was weird because I was eighteen, so I was living with the freshmen guys in like the first semester of yes. college. But I was taking classes with the guys who graduated, so they were. 23 to like 30, you know, a lot of guys. Were <laughs> so older. you're the young one again. Yeah. So again, I'm the young one there, but it was kind of best of both worlds. Cause I hung out with the guys who were my age. We had a lot of fun on that hall, but I was able to take classes with the older guys. So it worked out pretty well. You got to network with a lot of, you know, a lot of deacons and priests that, that are all around the, you know, the area now. Yeah. It's pretty cool that you build a lot of those connections with guys um, and who are ministering in different areas. So how long were you there in Dallas? Two years. Just yeah. two years, but normally it would have been four. Yeah. So if a guy hadn't been to college, it would be four years. So like for, for Deacon Joseph, he did four years there. Um, and actually when I got my spiritual director at the time had said like, maybe you should not even go into seminary yet because you're so young for your education level. They might have you go extra time. Okay. So, um, he even thought it might, it might've been a good idea to go to law school and then go into seminary. Um, I did feel like God was calling, calling me in, you know, at that time. So, um, but there were conversations when I was at the seminary about me staying two extra years to get like a master's degree in something, you know, so I could get older. Um, which I prayed a lot with and and had peace about if that's what they wanted, but they ended up after that those two years voting me on to move on. So, so master's degree, huh? That's what they thought about. What, yeah. What would you have taken your master's in, if ever? They said probably philosophy would have been like the most um, like realistic thing, the most helpful thing in ministry. They basically want you to have philosophy just to kind of understand um, the world and the human person, and then to take then to take theology after that. Why do you think they suggested that you stay there longer? Is it mainly just because of your age? I hope so. <laughs> or they wanted you to, 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 to go through the entire four-year process to get that full experience? I think, yeah, it would just be my age, you know. So again, all the other 18-year-olds there were going to be there for four years. So for me to leave at 20 um, was just kind of like... Yeah, you're, you're the exception to the rule. Yeah, it was a little bit unprecedented. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting because the way it worked out, you know, like Deacon Joseph went for four years there, but because he went to Rome, you do you don't do pastoral year like we do. Yes, and he's pretty young too, so he'll be ordained almost as young as I was. Just kind of the way it worked out with him. So, okay, so after those two years, that's your pastoral year. Oh, actually, so you do those two years, then you come back to Houston, okay, and you do two years of theology, then okay. you go on pastoral year, then another year of theology, then you become a deacon, and another year of theology, then you become a priest. Wow. Okay, it's confusing. Okay. Yes, it is. So. Two years in in Dallas. Yeah, two to four years of philosophy. Two depending to four on, years. Yeah. This is a long process. Seven to nine years, yeah. Wow. And then you come back to Houston. Mm -hmm. And then where are you? What parish are you at at that point when you come so, back to Houston? That summer we went to, after Dallas, we went to a program in Omaha, Nebraska, a spirituality program for 10 weeks. Okay. And you come back. And at that point, you're not really actually at a parish. I mean, you're full-time at the seminary Okay, for, for those two, for, for the next year. And then that next summer is when I came back here to St. Faustina for, um, you know, for five or six weeks, I guess it was for like a summer in the parish. Cause at that point, my discernment each year in seminary, I was kind of like, I just still wasn't sure until toward the end that this is what God wanted. So um, usually that summer you would go to like Mexico or Costa Rica mm -hmm. to study Spanish. And I remember asking like, can I be in a parish? Cause like, I'm still trying to figure out like if this is the path for me and like studying Spanish, if I can do that later when I'm more confident about my vocation, that would be good. So I really want to be in a parish to figure out 
you know, if parish life is really where I'm being called. So and, there was still some doubt there. Yeah, there was a lot of doubt until the end of pastoral year, which was five years in. Yeah. Okay, so at that point, when you come back to Houston, do you call up the ex-girlfriends? <laughs> I know I'm hammering I'll, I'll this in back a lot. To yeah. there. No, no. Just um, to see if you're 100% sure? <laughs> no, no, I, I was not doing that. Um, but there definitely was, a, you know, after that first year in seminary, um, I remember there was actually a point that next summer, um, especially because we were talking about maybe staying two extra years. I was kind of like, if that's what God wants, okay. But I'm not really like super enthusiastic about just two extra years of seminary. I thought about like taking some time off and doing something else. And there was even one point where like, I I think I told my dad, I just, I don't think I'm going to go back. And he was like, okay, that's fine. My parents were like so supportive and I almost didn't. And then like, there was like a little tug. It was like, nope go back. And I was like, ah, okay. So we loaded up the car and I went back to Dallas and, um, you know, I love being at the seminary with the, like hanging out with the guys. Like there was a blast. Like, there uh-huh. was just some awesome memories of us hanging. I mean, that's having like, you know, stupid stuff, having Nerf wars in the hallways <laughs> and guys doing pranks, you know, and like what kinds just, of pranks did you guys do? Um, early on, I, I wasn't involved in this one, but a big group of the freshmen went to the seniors hallway and put out like 2,000 little cups filled with water all in the hallway. It was crazy. 2,000 cups of water. I think it was like 2,000. It was, they, like a, they bought a bunch of sleeves of cups. <laughs> and they spent a couple hours filling. What's annoying is I don't even think it went that well. Like the guys just knocked them over and like moved on. I don't think they put enough water in them to really make a difference. Um, there was that. And then guys used to come to our to the showers and they would take one of the door, one of the, the knobs off, either the hot water or the cold water. Oh. And if it was the hot water knob, you could still take a shower, which is uncomfortable. If it was the cold water knob, like you, you'd burn yourself. You couldn't take a shower at all. So we would just go to their halls and take showers because it was super annoying. Um, it was a lot of pranks prank. like that happened a lot, huh? Guys, this one was kind of edgy. Guys would set up, um, we each had like our own prayer cubby. Okay. With like, you know, you have your stall and you have your bravery and your Bible and everything. Guys would like set up Legos and action figures and other guys. So they show up for prayer and be <laughs> a bunch of like Legos. That was a little bit too edgy probably in the chapel, but that one was pretty funny. There Did you ever prank the priests? Stuff. No, that would have been. That was off limits. That would have been next level. We didn't, we didn't do that. But I think the priest mostly kind of thought it was funny. They didn't really have a problem with the, the pranks. Um, there They're was used one to having guy, young Guys, right? Yeah. There was one time we got, we uh, picked up a guy's while he was sleeping on his mattress. We picked up his mattress and put it in the hallway. And he didn't wake up. It was awesome. He was just there. He just woke up in the morning. How like, many of you were there? There were probably like four or five of us, I think. I was just amazed he didn't wake up. Um, that was a pretty that was a pretty solid prank. It didn't hurt anybody, you know. But it was it must have been weird for him to wake up in the hallway. <laughs> Yeah, that was great. What time did you guys do that? Was like in the middle of the night or? I don't remember. Did, he might have gone to bed early or something. He must have been super tired. And I might have been what it was. Yeah. Did, um, did anybody play any pranks on you? I'm trying to think. I don't think there were a lot played on me. Since I've come to this parish, there have been a lot of pranks really? played on me. But before at seminary, there wasn't. What kind of pranks did they pull on you here? You haven't heard about this? Man, when I was getting ready for my birthday, like in the weeks leading up to my birthday, First, they um, filled my office with balloons. I like remember that one. Balloons. Yes. Then that was all over social media. Covered a part <laughs> of my wall in my office with a hundred pictures of me. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, which was crazy. Father Dad apparently was helping him do that. That headshot this. He of was, you with the. Yeah. <laughs> 
and he was letting them in. And then there was one where they put like they gave Father Dad something to put in the rectory that was like it was like this scary picture that said like the calm before the storm. It kind of freaked me out. Then they covered my car in a bunch of sticky notes, tons of sticky notes. And um, well, they put an air horn underneath my underneath my desk chair. So when I sat down on it, it like. Ah. <laughs> It was some good ones. Did you jump up at that one or? No, well, it's funny because it didn't, it didn't like go off perfectly. It was more like a pss oh. And so I was just like, what's happening to my chair? It was like exploding. Um, then I realized it was the air horn. So yeah, yeah. We have a very prankster parish. <laughs> so you're at the, so you go back from the, from, from the, the college. Let's, let's go back to college. All right. In, in Dallas. What was your life like there in Dallas? Were you like a regular college student? Did you have a, a lot of freedom to go around? What was your schedule like? Yeah, as a- yeah. So um, we had a pretty structured prayer schedule. So we had morning prayer at 6.30, followed by mass, um, breakfast, and then everybody had different class schedules. We took class at the University of Dallas, which was like right by the seminary. It was mm-hmm. a great setup to have. Um, so guys had different schedules. Like I said, I was taking classes with the older guys, just like straight philosophy courses, basically, um, with some theology, mostly philosophy. And so we'd go on campus to do that. We'd have lunch, and then we'd have evening prayer together and meditation time. And then throughout the week, you'd have spiritual direction and formation classes. Um, and then Sundays, we had a lot of liturgies and things like that. So um, there's definitely some college. And, and we had some freedom. We would play in the intramural sports on the okay. campus, which was cool. We played football and basketball and soccer and everything. We'd have seminary teams, softball, that kind of stuff. Um, we could go on campus for certain events. But we had um, we obviously had like responsible hours, curfew times. Did you have to, to get permission to go on campus all the time? Was there <laughs> forms to fill the, out or anything like that? Or? No, not during the days, you know. Okay. Um, like I said, if you wanted to be out past like 11 on a weekday or I think it was, you had to get permission for that. But if you were just, you know, getting your studies done, you probably weren't going to do that. And on Saturdays, you were pretty free to do stuff. So guys would hang out with students sometimes or go see their families and that kind of thing. What so. about college parties? <laughs> How <laughs> does that work? Hopefully nobody was going to college parties. Hopefully that wasn't happening. But there's no, there's no hard rule that you can't interact period or no no. okay in fact i would say it was kind of healthy i think for guys to be around you know young young guys young girls you know to be around that that's probably helpful for your discernment you know yes exactly that's what i was thinking some pretty girls on campus so you kind of had to make sure you were doing what you need to be doing you know how does that work with it with the girls on campus you just have to make sure you're, you're smart about it and you're careful it's good to have friends you know certainly um, and then no guys who, uh, you know, have, have good relationships from, and also, I mean, there were guys who left and dated girls, you know, so that who discerned out because the discerned out, well, they used to send the guys, well, at the university of Dallas where I took classes, there was a semester where they, everybody goes to Rome basically. And the seminarians used to do that Rome semester, but the story is like so many guys apparently like decided to leave that semester and got girlfriends that they decided to stop sending the seminarians to Rome and just keep them here. You know, that was because there was no formation happening really when you're, when you're over, over there. So yeah, it was, it was a really positive experience and a really good setup. I think with classes, they're challenging classes were tough, but they were good. So in terms of, you know, interacting with girls during that point, do you tell them right away? Oh, I'm, I'm a seminarian. (laughs) Do you, 
Do you wear a t-shirt that says seminary? We, all, we didn't or have to wear our <laughs> seminary shirts, but they were cool. And they made like some really sweet drive fit ones that said HTS, Holy Trinity Seminary on them. So we okay. were like, most of the time. And honestly, we traveled in packs. Like you could tell the groups of seminarians going around because we all came from the seminary together. Okay. So it was pretty easy to spot. It wasn't something you were hiding from anybody. So no guys walking up to like you you meet a girl you're talking to a girl and no guy goes she's a seminarian. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, yeah, it was there was transparency from the beginning about the fact that it would be a platonic relationship. Yeah, was it awkward talking to girls in, on campus that you were a seminarian? Did they were they amazed? You know, what was their reaction when you tell them? That you were a um, I think they most of them got pretty used to the fact that like oh yeah the seminary is here so there's a lot of guys on campus mm-hmm. like they kind of. That was kind of part of what they were doing too. They, they recognized that. And you also would have guys who, you know, started at the school and then ended up joining the seminary, you know, just stay in school, but then would move to the seminary and enter formation. So nice. you'd hang out with them, you'd talk to them and then, yeah, they'd and kind then of, some of them would join. The, that's, that's yeah, pretty exactly. cool. And you had guys who go the other direction too. So, you know, I think it was a pretty healthy, healthy combo. So when we spoke with Deacon Joseph, Deacon Joseph White, he said he, he used the term that I'd never heard before chalice chippers <laughs> are there a lot of chalice chippers that you you know what? you run into yeah that was something guys always said it was like chalice chippers or cassock chasers or um i did not encounter a lot of girls who i thought were out to like get a seminarian to marry i just didn't see that okay you know, i thought it was pretty healthy you know good interactions and um yeah, I didn't necessarily see that. But there were times, yeah, like guys guys would leave and they'd get married to people and that's how God can work too. You know, yeah. That's okay. It's it's not meant for them. Yeah. Were there a lot of guys that discerned out? So Among your group of friends? Yeah, so f- in my class, again, the guys I were living with were the younger guys, but the guys who I entered with academically, um, there were 14 of us from different dioceses who entered that seminary. And by Christmas, only seven of us were left, <laughs> which is crazy. Uh, you know, attrition is rate. That, is that the normal rate? That was a little bit odd. Like, I think even when that okay. happened, some of the vocation director was like, whoa, what just happened? Like, that was a little too quick. Again, these guys were older. I think they had a pretty good sense quickly. Okay. Like, this is not for me, you know, so they would leave. Um, and then I think by the end of the next semester, a couple more left. Um, of the guys I was living with on, on the hall, they were younger. So it, it took a little bit more time, you know, some of them still left, but I've heard the stats are like 40%, I think, get ordained of guys who enter. Okay. Um, which over the course of seven, nine years, that's not bad. No, not bad at all. So let's talk about finances in terms of you being in college there. Now I understand that it's sort of like a loan if you discern out. Yeah. But if you're if you stay in, all of that is paid for? Is that how that works? Yes, yeah, so if you go in through and become a priest, they're not going to ask you to pay back those loans okay. like you're obviously serving them with what you what you received. Um but then you don't sign anything, but they do ask that if you leave and like, you know, you're working other jobs and things uh-huh. like that and like you're benefiting, you know, to some extent from the education you yes. received that you would try to pay back at least the first 2 years. What about your daily expenses? How does that work? So you get like a hundred and fifty, hundred sixty dollars stipend each month, okay, um, to kind of pay for that stuff. Obviously, if you've got, um, you know, insurance for a car and that kind of thing, that doesn't go a super long way. A lot of us had, um, had you know, family and stuff helping us out with that, which was a real gift. Um, so I think 
I think it tends to work out for everybody. If you have certain needs, there's people who can definitely help with that. The Knights of Columbus often tend to support you with okay. the checks periodically. They're super generous. So um, that, that 150 is is pretty great. Uh, some dioceses don't give you, don't really give you that much. So we're really blessed. Are there any them. priests that really struggle with finances during that period? Or excuse me, seminarians? I think for some guys, it's a, a challenge just to make sure they're living kind of within the means. You shouldn't need a lot of other things. And if all the food is provided for, you know, obviously your lodging and everything. So um, hopefully if you're, you budget everything well, you should be okay. Um, but yeah, there's resources for guys who are struggling. So. Okay. So you, it's not it's not a difficult life being a, a seminarian in terms of financial yeah, I, I don't, I don't much... think they want you to be like struggling financially because you can't have another job. They don't want yes. you to have another job. So they don't want to set up an environment where like guys are, you know, not able to buy, you know, toothpaste. Um, so they want to, they want to help. So for you, come you come back to Houston and then that one year, that first year after, what what did you say you were doing during that year? That first year after in seminary, I was working at the vocations office. Okay. Um, helping out there and then also helping out at a parish, kind of doing both those at times. So I was with Father Dad again in the vocations office then, which was great. That's pretty cool how you're you're back with Father Dad now. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty amazing, honestly, how it worked out. So we did a lot of stuff with, I made a lot of videos that summer for the vocations office. Another buddy of mine is awesome with graphic design. Um, so he would, uh, he redesigned the website and took a bunch of pictures and Photoshop stuff. So it was a fun summer. Then after that, what happened? Then went back to seminary for that second year. Seminary here in Houston. That was, um, the second year was in Dallas and the third year was back here in Houston. Okay, so yeah. after you're, you're back here in Houston, after that third year, what's the next step? Third year, well, not, another year. So I then I spent a summer in the parish, St. Faustina. Yes, okay. Great. I, okay. And then um, the fourth year in, um, fourth year at the, at the seminary here in Houston. And then after that is when you go into your pastoral year where you spend an entire year at a parish. And where was that? That was at St. Martha's in Kingwood with Monsignor Borski and Father Richard McNeely, which is interesting. Monsignor Borski was... Monsignor Borski was my pastor for a pastoral year. And that's so. cool how he's, you know, he's helping us out here. It's Santa pretty Faustina. amazing that like Father Dad I was with at a parish, Monsignor Borski I was with at the parish, and now all three of us are priests together at a parish. I mean, it's kind of insane how God works. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's then awesome. even, you know, uh, Deacon Joseph White, you were in the seminary with him, and then you guys catch yeah. up again here at St. Faustina for a few weeks. Exactly. Or a few months. Like, yeah, it was like he was four here months. For almost, almost three months. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it's pretty awesome how God's worked it out. I just felt super blessed. Yeah, to be with Monsignor Borski and Father Dad and have Joseph here this summer was cool. And Deacon Houston, we were only in seminary a little bit together, um, the way things overlapped, but it's awesome to have him too. Um, but, and then also Father Richard McNeely was the parochial vicar, the assistant priest at St. Martha's, and he's the vocations director now. So it's funny because actually my my last year in seminary, so he was like the, the priest at the parish when I was on pastoral year, and we were in seminary together um, for a year when he was a deacon. And then when I was a deacon, he was like my vocations director, which is wow. like really fascinating how it all works out. That is so cool. Know? So at what point do you get assigned to a parish? As a, as a, uh, for pastoral year. Okay. It, for pastoral year, yes. is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. So they just kind of, you don't really know when you're going to hear it. Um, just sometime in the spring before you go, they just tell you like, Hey, you're going to this parish. And then you start there in the fall. So you don't have any choice whatsoever. You can't give them a list of, uh, here's my number one choice. Number two choice. No, I think they ask you like, what kind of parish do you think you want to be in? But I don't know if it's cause like they're going to put you in that parish or they just kind of want to kind of know where you're at. 
Okay, so after that year, what happens next? Yeah, so for me going into that year, honestly, I was probably like 50-50 on discernment. You really? Know? Still? Yeah. So that was four years in, going to my fifth year. And I just, I remember telling God, like, if if this doesn't go well, you know, I just don't feel a lot of peace about parish life, uh-huh. then like I probably need some more time to figure this out. How old were you out. at this time? So I was 22. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I said, hey, if this is a good fit, you know, I feel a lot of peace about this, then like, I think we're good to go. So, um, and it was just an amazing experience. It was so great to be with the people and all these incredible moments, you know, whether it was funerals, weddings, just hanging out with the youth group, playing dodgeball with the kids at the school, you know, there were so many moments where I thought like, yeah, I could give my life to this. Like this would be worth it, you know? And, and you go from like in seminary, you know, you're celibate, right? You know, uh-huh. you're looking to like a whole life of celibacy and you want to give the Lord everything, but you're also kind of wondering like, who am I celibate for? You know, am I celibate to take this test? You know, like this doesn't really add up. And finally on that pastoral year, um, you know, being with the people, it was like, okay, these are, these are the people I'm going to be celibate for. Like these are the people worth with giving my life to, you know? And so um, to kind of be able to see that and to have it be real, um, I came out of that year, year feeling very strong. Like, okay, I, I could do this with my life and um, let, let's keep going, make it happen. So when you were at that point of being 50-50, did you think, did did you think, okay, well, maybe I could be a deacon? <laughs> were you were you kind of swaying between those thoughts? Um, being a deacon, I mean, you, you become a transitional deacon before you become a priest. Yes. That's kind of there, but um, I never... But being a permanent deacon. Permanent deacon was never like a huge on my radar. Okay. I, again, like confessions and mass was like my main draw to ministry. Okay. And as a, as a deacon, you can't do those things. So um, that was kind of more my focus. Obviously, like if I was going to become a priest, marriage would have been, you know, huge on my radar. Yes. But. So at what point did you start going from being 50-50 to 60-40, 70-30? What point did you say, this is it 100%? Yeah, yeah. You know, gradually throughout that year, I would say it happened. There wasn't like a specific moment, um, but there were lots of small moments where I was like, wow, like to be a priest is, that's incredible. You know, and to see Monsignor Borsky's example and Father Richards and to see what they were able to do for people and to see how they were loved by the people, you know, it was very encouraging. Um, so yeah, lots of moments throughout that year when I just thought like, Hey, I could give my life to this, you know? And so by the end of that year, I just wanted more, more time in the parish. I wanted to be with the people more. So coming back to seminary for that third year was really good actually. Cause it was like, okay, like we're, we're going to be in the parish again in a couple of years as a priest. So like, let's make the most of this time and mm-hmm. really focus on these classes and, um, look, look toward like a bright future. So Two more years, did you say? After yeah, two that? more years after that. One year just kind of as a seminary and then the last year as, as a deacon. Yeah, As a deacon. And and then you were a deacon. Where were you a deacon? I was a deacon at Most Holy Trinity Okay, um, in Angleton. And that was kind of cool too because the pastor there had actually been a seminarian on pastoral year at my home parish growing nice. up. Which was incredible. So like just like I did my pastoral year at St. Martha's, he did his pastoral year at St. Paul's in Nassau Bay when I was probably like 14. He played the, he's an awesome drummer, Father Victor Perez, played drums for retreats. And I was like, hey, this is a cool guy, you know? And so the fact that they assigned me to be like his, I mean, we have 150 parishes in the Archdiocese and 400 priests. Yes. The fact that I keep getting assigned with these guys, who like I have <laughs> kind of like a, you know, some, some type of like history with is pretty cool. Um, so that was a fun year hanging out with him and being a deacon there. Very different than St. Martha. St. Martha's was about 6,000 families. Um, a lot of big stuff happening. This was about 1,500 families, a little bit smaller out in Angleton. But I loved that too. I loved the pace of that and getting to know people and being with Father Victor. So a huge blessing. 
Do you ever get to go back to those parishes? Yeah. So I said mass there a couple months after I'd been a priest, which was cool a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, St. Martha's, I went and said mass there too, after I became a priest, went and helped on one of their retreats, the confirmation retreats a couple months ago. So, um, yeah, definitely trying to keep those, keep those relationships and those connections and give back to the people who did so much for you. So your year as a transitional deacon, at what point do you find out which parish you're going to go to? Yeah. So obviously you're talking about it throughout the year with your guys. Like, where do you think we're going to go? Like, I think maybe you're going to go here and you're placing bets and everything. And they ask you, you meet with the personnel board and they uh-huh. say like, what kind of parish do you see yourself in? And you answer the question and everything. And you talk to them for a while. Um, but you don't find out what parish you're going to be a priest at till the day before you get ordained. Wow. Really? Yeah. That? Yeah. So you go in for before. the rehearsal for the mass the day before, 24 hours before. Mm-hmm. And before the rehearsal, the Cardinal calls you in and gives you a letter and it's just you and him and you open up the letter and it says where you're going and you talk about it for a second and then, then you go do the rehearsal and you become a priest the next day and then you start there a month later. Why do they do that? Why do they tell you just the day before? <laughs> that's the, I don't know. I, I think part of it is like, that's kind of the tradition that we've developed here. Some places they tell you guys, I mean, I, I knew other guys from other dioceses at the seminary who found out months before where they knew it was oh, like really? public information. Wow. And then some places they announce it at the end of the ordination mass. So you literally get ordained before you know where you're wow. going. Then they say like, okay, and Father Dan Michael's going to this place and you're going, you know. So everybody kind of has a different system. Um, I think part of it is like, there's always things changing, you know, that's true. You move somebody, it moves this person, guys maybe have health problems or stuff or so the more time they can have to figure it out, probably the better. So I think they kind of just give themselves to the day before to, you know, and for us again, it's not like you move in the next day, you have a month, uh-huh. you know, off. So you're kind of priest honeymoon, you know, a month off to do stuff. So the parish and you have time to figure out the logistics of it. If it weren't St. Faustina, where do you think you would have been? Oh, did you have, did you have a parish that you were eyeing and crossing your fingers? I hope they send me here. Or? No, no, there definitely wasn't one that I was like, I really tried to be like, I was just so pumped to be a priest, man. Honestly, I was just so excited. And it's weird not knowing where you're going to go. Cause it's like, you're getting married, but you don't know who your wife's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like you're, you're committing, but you also don't like what she looks like or where she is, you know? So, um, you think is, they could make a reality show out of that with priests <laughs> and parish, seminary match or something, you know? Um, so I really didn't have a, pre- a preference, you know, I figured it would be a slightly bigger parish because, you know, you have to go somewhere that they need a second priest. You yes. Know, a tiny parish probably is going to have two priests when we have huge parishes that need two or three priests. So, you know, there was a short list of like eight or nine that we, we kind of thought were feasible and St. Faustina um, was definitely on that list. Were and, you making bets with the other? I mean, there was never money exchanged, but we definitely were taking our, yeah, we were definitely <laughs> saying, I think it's going to be this and hoping we were right. Um, and a few of our guesses were, were definitely correct, kind of panned out. Um, but it was interesting because when I met with Cardinal, he gave me the letter and he said, you know, St. Faustina is the youngest parish in the diocese and you're the youngest priest. So sounds like a good fit, you know? So It is a great fit. It's been fun. I've been so thankful. Opening that letter, did it feel like, you know, you were opening like a college admission <laughs> letter or something? <laughs> did I get accepted? Well, it's funny because you know you're going somewhere. That's right? true. They're not going to be like, congratulations, we could not find a place that would take you. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out nobody wants you. We don't really need priests that bad. No. Um, 
but it was it was kind of surreal. Yeah, like again, like this is the context for my priesthood for the next two to three years. Yes. You know, um, these are the people, these are my experience where I'm going to be living, what I'm going to be doing. So it was pretty wild to open it up. But I was super pumped to, to, to hear I was coming to St. Faustina, that'd be with Father Dad again. And, um, you know, I, obviously I was here five years ago for a few weeks, but it's like a totally different parish now. You know, it's changed and grown so much. So do, do you get to talk to your family anytime during this process? Do you get to call them up right after you open the letter or you're not supposed to tell anybody? How does that so work? So at that point it is public. As soon as they tell you, you can, okay. you can let people know. So I remember texting Father Dat pretty quick and I said, hey man, uh, uh, I'm excited to be coming out there. And uh, we, you know, he said, hey, yeah, we're excited to have you. So he already knew. Yeah, so he knew. But yeah, and then I texted my family pretty quick. And then I think somebody posted on Facebook. So I was getting messages from people. So yeah, it's exciting. What was the reaction? I mean, obviously all positive, right? Uh -huh. um, I don't think I got any like, dang it, we heard you're coming. <laughs> this is so disappointing. Or, or anybody saying, we were hoping to get you here at our parish. We didn't get, um, I didn't guess, get any of those types of messages. I don't think so. Uh, I remember somebody told me they were really, this was later, and we're close now, me and that person, but they said like, yeah, we were really hoping for Father Ryan. We heard it with you. It was you. We were very disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I totally understand that. Father Ryan would have been, would have been awesome to have. Yeah. So you find out this is, this becomes public. And then the following day you're ordained. Yeah. Tell me about your day. It was there. amazing. Yeah. So all my family was there th from the day before and just being with them and um, was, was really awesome. And uh, woke up that morning and uh, drove down there with a priest friend of mine. He had vested me year before, um, old family friend and, you know, praying on the way up there and kind of praying before. And I mean, it's just surreal. So you the know? night like, before the day. You, you're still with that parish that you've been with or do you, you're no, you I was back home. At the I was home at that okay. point. Yeah. With my family. Um, you know, th there were a lot of diet guys who did different things, but I, I really wanted to be with my family during that okay. time. And you know, they, some of them are coming from out of town. So the house was, was full, you know, and so being with them was great. And then getting the cathedral day of, you know, you serve as a seminary and you serve all these ordinations. Right. So like, each time you had this ordination, like you see the guys getting ready, you know, yes. it's so weird to be like that guy now. Like this is getting ordained today, you know? And, um, in essence, it's, it's, it's like your wedding day. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, you, you've seen other people go through the process. You've seen other people get married yep. and now it's your turn. Yeah. And, uh, there were seven of us getting ordained, which is the most since 1986 for the archdiocese. Uh, so the, the church was just packed, you know, it was packed and, and the music was amazing. It was really beautiful. And we got to pick the music and just walking in, seeing all the people, you know, Who I were really you ordained with, I was ordained with father Ryan, obviously, uh, -huh. uh father Justin Cormie, he said St. Ignatius, father Ricardo Ariola Gonzalez who's at St. Bartholomew's nearby here, Kingsley Nwoku. Um, who said Anthony of Padua, I believe it is. And Father Vincent Tran, um, who's over at Christ the Redeemer. And then Jose Alonso, who's at St. Helens. Okay, and you said you remembered walking in? Yeah, so I remember walking in, the ordination, like the music, you know, and all these people. And I really felt the Lord, like in my heart, say like, hey, David Michael, these are, these are my people, right? This, this is my church, these are my people. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a father for them. And today um, they become your people. Like I need you to be a father to them. Um, these are your people now. 
And um, even though like I'm 25 years old and I'm still figuring out life and everything, I did feel so much um, like love for these people and, and like like a real deep feeling of like spiritual fatherhood. Like these are the people I need to care for and like love throughout my life. And these are people I'm laying my, my life down for today. And uh, yeah, immediately I got in my pew, my family was all there and I just started crying. Oh. You know, I was just, I was bawling. Like <laughs> even my mom and dad, like, are you okay? <laughs> you know? And I was just overwhelmed just like, there have been so many moments of prayer, you know, throughout seminary that were tough, that were hard. And it was just so many times where I was asking God, like, what do you want? Like, I'll do anything. I just want to know what you want. And um, to be able to come to that moment and to see how he'd been working my whole life to bring me there, there was just like so much peace and so much gratitude to be in that moment. And uh, yeah, it was just beautiful. So what did you, what did you think about? In terms of the difficult moments, what was the most difficult thing that you thought about while you were there? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think it was almost like, like again, like I told you, like I almost didn't go back that first year of seminary. Uh-huh. And the second and third year, I was like, you know, it was questionable. And pastoral year was 50-50. And um, especially with celibacy, so many things, I was like, gosh, am I really going to do this? You know, am I, am mm-hmm. I really going to be celibate for the rest of my life? You know, am I going to give that up? And, um, you know, a vocation, I think is a, it's a fragile thing. A vocation's not like your fate. Like, oh, you just end up, you got to end up doing it, doing it, you uh-huh. know? Especially in today's culture, in today's society, there were so many moments where I could have very easily, and almost did, choose something else. You know, I would have chosen something good, you know? I wouldn't have uh-huh. lived a horrible life. Um, but there were a lot of opportunities I had to do something else, you know? And yet, like, the Lord always was, like, faithful and always gave me what I needed when I needed, gave me the doves when I needed the doves um, to keep me going. And so like in that moment, kind of thinking about everything, it's like, this was so close to not happening, I guess in some sense, like it would have been so easy for this never to happen. But the Lord, like in his patience and his gentleness and his kindness um, kept working with me. And so the fact that like it is, it is happening, you know, is just, it's just incredible. Was there one particular moment that you remember where you were the closest to calling it quits. <laughs> yeah. So definitely that, um, that first, again, at that first year, I decided like not to go back basically. And um, again, like, I can't even explain like why I went back. You know, it was like, why did I go back? Like, even looking back now, it's like, it would have been so easy to leave. Um, and there were a couple moments like that where it was like, I think I'm not going to do this anymore. And then it was just like, it would, I would just keep going. You know, I, I can see the hand of God in it, but like, come on, man, keep going. You know, um, so yeah, that would probably be the, the, but there were a lot of other moments too, like that, that were close. So you, so all of that comes rushing in all at the same time while you're there, Yeah, you're, you're seeing, you know, the people of God, like you said, it's all coming in. Do you remember actually that day? Is it a blur? Do you, do you remember it moment, moment for moment? How does yeah, yeah. So that, you know, I kind of, I mean, I cried intensely at that moment, but I kind of got all the tears out. So for the rest of the ceremony, I was like, I was much more stable. I was good to go. And yeah, laying down, you know, on the floor where they pray the litany of saints. I'm literally giving your life, laying down your life for the Lord, you know, it's beautiful. And the, the, uh, the bishop, you know, the Cardinal Leonardo putting chrism on your hands, consecrating your hands um, was incredible. And yeah, right at the end, you know, you, you turn around and give everybody a blessing, you know, and like, you see like, okay, this is, this is the church, you know, let's go. 
And uh, so we finished that. I went over to the seminary. We did like first blessings. They called it for a little while, but we had scheduled for my first mass to be that night. Okay. Um, so I'd just been ordained and just a few hours later, I was getting ready for my first mass. And my, that was at my home parish, St. Paul's. And we had five or six priests celebrating and it was, um, you know, all my friends and my family, you know, all these people I'd grown up with. And uh, it was funny because at the beginning of mass, I had, I was, I, I was, thinking about joking and saying like, Hey, it's, Hey, you know, good afternoon. I'm Deacon David Michael. I, I mean, father David Michael uh-huh. like, is a joke. Um, but I decided not to do that. I was like, that'd be kind of cheesy. And, <laughs> and then I accidentally did it. Like I, I literally was like, I'd been saying Deacon David Michael so much. I was like, Hey, I'm Deacon. Da- I mean, father David Michael. And then everybody laughed, you know, For like, a year. That's why you've been, I've been, yeah, I've been saying Deacon David Michael all the time. So it was kind of funny that happened at the beginning. And I, you know, uh, I uh, usually it's kind of a tradition in the church that for your first mass you have a uh, like an older, more experienced priest like preach the homily, mm-hmm. so you can just focus on the mass. Yes, um, but I, you know, I mentioned the homily. I, I kind of decided, hey, I've, I've been a priest since lunch. You know, I got this. <laughs> I got this. A whole this uh, many yeah, hours. Right? Exactly, I got this. So I, um, I, I did decide to preach, and, and the reason why is because I felt like how many chances, other chances, will I get to have all my friends and family there to get That's to talk true. to them about Jesus? You know, That's like true. this is a this is a special moment right now. So um, I, I preached and um, the mass was just really beautiful. And then afterwards, you a lot of times give first blessings. And I was there for like two and a half hours after the mass, just giving blessings. It was just a, a long line, which that was amazing um, that the people would even stay that long, you know? And by the time like, I finished with the blessing. The whole reception was like kind of done. They were out of food, you know? And, um, but again, like when will I get to do that again? You know, and the, the church does have like an ancient, you know, reverence for, for the, uh, a priest's first blessings and like his first year of priest, or we consider those blessings to have like a special character, you know, it's really beautiful. So, um, yeah, that was just an incredible experience. So too. that first mass that you do, now let's talk about learning the mass, all the things that you've memorized to have to say, is there a tester? Do you, do you run through it in front of a priest or is it something you're just expected to know on your own? Yeah. So it's a class we take. It's okay. presidential leadership. They call it. Um, it's essentially like how to preside over a mass well and along with other sacraments. We do it for weddings, baptisms, everything. So um, you do it with a teacher and classmates watching you. They critique you, say you did it. You do different um, different prayers and different variations of it, depending on the, the situation. And then you do a video, English and Spanish that you send in that they also critique. Uh, so they try to make sure we have a, you know, a solid foundation, but obviously, you know, they know that, um, especially going out of the seminary, you're, you're the one making the decisions about how you're going to, if you're going to say mass correctly or not, you know, mm-hmm. like, so they, they hopefully, you know, have evaluated you to make sure you have the integrity to do what the church has asked. So do they give you, like, during this class, do they give you all of these different, all of these different scenarios? In this situation, you're supposed to do that. In this situation, you're supposed to do that. Yeah, yeah, like, for sure. I mean, it's not crazy complicated. Like a wedding is probably the best one. If it's two Catholics, you do a certain thing. If it's a Catholic and a Christian, you do a certain thing. If it's a Catholic and a non-baptized person, non-Christian, you do something else. That's like something... Um, for a baptism, similarly, depending on how many kids you have, you're going to do different stuff. Um, and then for masses, depending on the liturgical season, you're going to have different things that you do. So yeah, we could, they try to run through all that. Okay. So do, do they have any like weird situations? Like what is the most odd situation that they've taught you about during the class um, for mass? That's a, uh, there's something that's like too crazy. I don't think, um, 
Like I, what to do if a bird suddenly flies <laughs> into the church or something? Or they no, did tell um, us like, you know, some weird thing like that. Yeah. If uh, like, if uh, what is it? If like a fly goes into the, the chalice, like the blood after you consecrate it, like what you're supposed to do. And like, even some theologians have posited like, um, you know, is like, is the fly now, you know, part of the blood or something. Uh, but it sounds like the best thing you can do is just either you can put it on this thing called the sacrarium, which is like a special sink we have in the sacristy. Okay. It goes straight into the ground. It doesn't go into like the sewer system. It goes into the ground. So if you have like a situation like that, you can pour things down that. And then we consider that's kind of sacred because it goes straight in the ground. Okay. So, so those types of rules and things you learn in the class. So you, you, you take tests on this. Um, so we never did like written tests on okay. like mass. I don't think there was some basic things we went. No, there, I guess there was one simple test. A lot of it's in person though, formation being learned, you know, so even throughout seminary, hopefully we're being formed liturgically just in the everyday prayer that we're doing the way liturgies are set up. They're teaching us how we're supposed to be doing it. Right. So do they have like a situation where somebody says a mock mass or a fake mass and you're supposed to point out everything they did wrong? <laughs> Do you do that type of thing? Um, it was never like set up by the priest like that, but we would all say mass and then we would critique each other. Okay. Yeah, so at the end of the guy saying a mass, you know, it'd be, it'd be, they call it a dry mass. He's not a priest, so it's fake. Yes, but they yes. say the words and do this stuff. And so um, we would say like, hey, you missed this part or like okay. you really should try. And So there's no video that you watch and there's 157 errors in this mass. <laughs> no, catchy, no, each that never happened. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you say that that first mass as a priest at what point do you go to St. Faustine? Is it the following day? You given a week or so or? Yeah. So I said that was my first day of priesthood, said that mass. Um, and then the next day I said a mass in another parish, which was cool, like locally, which was fun. And then throughout that week, I had masses at different parishes. And then I, yeah, that, then I had a wedding that next Saturday, then a wedding the next Saturday. And then I went and did heard confessions at a Steubenville conference the week after that, which was cool. It was like five, five and a half hours of confession that uh -huh. day, which was awesome. And then the next week, and I think is when I started at St. Faustina. Okay. But where were you living at that point? So I was, I was obviously traveling some for the weddings, but I was with my parents. Yeah. Okay. So that's normal. You, you go back to your, your parents. You, it depends on the guy. That... I think like Father Ryan probably was with his parents a lot. Um, some guys... Uh, you know, stayed at the seminary. I think some of that time still, they still had rooms there. Some guys moved into their parishes pretty early. It just depends. Okay. But you had a lot of weddings and stuff to do. Yeah. You yeah. were reserved. You were booked. I was booked. <laughs> I was booked. Yeah. All right. So at this point, you find out you're going, you, you already know you're going to St. Faustina. You got about a month, you said before? Yeah. It's a month. You move, okay. So during that month, you're going, you're doing all these things and then you check in with Father Dad. And then you start right away or have you already had meetings with father dad? So I emailed him about a couple things just to make sure we're on the same page or some stuff and get his thoughts. Um, but besides that, it was, I think a Tuesday morning I showed up and he said, okay, show up at this time, you know? So I got here probably at seven thirty, eight o'clock before mass. And, um, we, I can celebrate the mass and he preached and kind of introduced me to people. And then we immediately hopped in the confessional for about an hour and a half. You know, that was like, that was like day one, you know, cause we have confessions Tuesday mornings. And then we went straight to a leadership meeting. We had that. Then we had um, lunch. We had a staff meeting. 
We had an interview for the youth minister. It was actually Katie, our youth minister. You probably interview her at some point. Uh-huh. She, um, it was her her interview that day. It was my first day at the parish, which is kind of okay. Cool. I was joking too in the interview. Like everybody was asking like her questions, and I was like, it was my first day. But I thought about being like, here at Saint Faustina, we're trying to build a culture. <laughs> you know, like, do you think you could fit in well with this with this culture? It's like it's my first day. <laughs> I didn't say anything during that meeting. Um, so that was like day one. Was off to the races. You know, with mass and confessions and meetings. And just, just hit like, the ground running. Yeah. Let's go got a bunch of things to do so confessions um speaking of you know all the things that you have to do as a priest so confessions and weddings do you remember each and every first one that you've done um yes my first wedding was actually as a deacon um because you can do a weddings you can do weddings for that are not they don't have a mass basically as a deacon so when i was transitioning i did a wedding for a friend of mine who uh she had uh We'd been all service together since we were like seven or eight years old. Okay. So it's kind of cool to get to do her wedding. Um, so that was cool. Uh, yeah, I think pretty much everything I probably remember like the first one. You know, they kind of stack up pretty quick. But Were there any things that you didn't do as a deacon that you did, that you, you know, I mean, that, that you could have done as a deacon, but then you didn't get around to doing it until you became a priest, like baptisms? Not really. Like? So I was, I did quite a few baptisms as a deacon, baptized my my nephew as a deacon, which was cool. Um, but I think I was able to do most of my exercise, most of my diaconal faculties. Was there anything that you were really looking forward to doing as a priest? You know, obviously saying mass. I mean, mass. that's the source of course. of it. But Aside I, from I've that. always had a real passion for, for confessions. You know, I feel like that's so much of how, um, how we make saints, you know, is like through the sacrament of confession because it gives you a chance, obviously, to receive God's forgiveness, his healing, and then to evaluate your life and say, how, how can I do better in the future? You know, so I've experienced so much grace from that. Um, and our patron saint of a parish priest is St. John Vianney, and he's known for hearing tons of confessions. So it's like, hey, if I want to be a saint as a parish priest, hearing lots of confessions is probably a safe route. <laughs> so yeah, I definitely have a have a big heart for that. So that f- first day of confessions here at St. Faustina, was that your first confession? Were those your first confessions or had you done some no, during done that month? No, I'd done quite all? a few. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'd been helping out. A few different parishes had events that they needed help with. So I, I tried to be available for that. Okay. So now that you're here at St. Faustina, the parochial vicar, what exactly does it entail? What What are the responsibilities of a parochial vicar? Yeah. Um, so really whatever the pastor really wants you to help with is going to be your focus. Obviously, what can I do that other people can't do? It's going to be sacraments. That's why the diocese signed, signed me here. So first responsibility certainly is going to be um, saying mass, um, hopefully preaching well. That's a big part of my time is preparation for preaching. That's important. I don't uh, preach for very long, but I prepare pretty, pretty long. Um, and you're doing that, you know, obviously on weekends, but multiple times during the week. Um, in fact, you're preaching at weddings and funerals consistently. So homily prep is a pretty constant thing. Um, and then outside of mass confessions, right? Like we were just saying, um, anointing. So half the week I take the emergency phone. And if we get a call for somebody who needs an anointing, either like immediately or they need it, you know, pretty soon, I, I help out with that. Um, weddings, funerals, just had a funeral on Saturday, um, preparing for a couple of weddings right now. That's going to be the big stuff, but also I'm meeting with people, you know, is, is a big part of it too. Whether people are just going through something, they need to talk to a priest. Mm-hmm. They want spiritual direction because they're trying to make a decision on something. Um, that's a, that's a big part of it too. And that I, t- I find that my time kind of fills up a lot with, with meetings. So, um, 
one-on-one. And then also you've got meetings um, as, as a staff, you know, things as a parish, trying to make sure on the same page, either with the leadership team or the pastoral council or the stewardship council or the finance council or the liturgy council. Yeah, there's a lot of those things that come up too. Um, so uh, that's kind of the main, we've added the holy hours in the afternoon, which is really beautiful, mm-hmm. helping out with those. Um, so it's the schedule. It's, it's very diverse, which I like. One thing about parish priesthood is I'm not, just doing spiritual direction all day or just saying mass all day long. There's a lot of diversity in my schedule, but it does tend to fill up pretty fast. What has surprised you the most about priesthood? Yeah. Um, oh, that's a good question. What surprised me the most? Honestly, maybe just how much I just enjoy it. Like I, I thought I would find it very meaningful and it is. Uh-huh. Um, and I knew what I, what I need to be doing but I also just really enjoyed it. It gels well with me. I, I like people. I like being with people. I like serving them. And I, I enjoy, you know, coming to the office and saying hi to, to Liz, the receptionist. And I enjoy answering my emails and answering the phone hearing confessions and saying mass. Like it gels very well with my spirit, you know? And, um, I, I find that it's a very, it's like so meaningful. Like that's, what's incredible about priesthood is it's just so meaningful. It's not always easy. Um, cause it's, it's not always easy. It's not always fun, although it is fun a lot, but it's always meaningful. What's the most difficult part of being a priest that you've discovered? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I'd maybe would answer that question from two perspectives. There's like everyday difficulties, you know, just okay. kind of like working with this stuff. And for me, a lot of that is like just kind of mundane tasks, you know, things you got to take care of, things you got to do on logistical things. You know, I'm more of a, um, a creative kind of type. I want to like tackle things in different angles. And part of, you know, priesthood is, is like even paperwork, you know, for a wedding, you've got to take care of the marriage license and things like that. Mundane, maybe stuff is mm-hmm. kind of hard. Um, on a deeper level, I mean, I think long-term like obedience and long, and, and like celibacy are going to be the big, and there's, there's a, there's a, there's a reason you took those promises. If they were easy, you wouldn't have promised to do it the rest mm-hmm. of your life. It would have just been like natural. Um, you know, to do whatever is asked of you um, is going to be difficult long-term. So far, it's been real easy. I love, I, they told me to go to St. Faustina. I love St. Faustina. It's easy. <laughs> but uh, long-term, there could be some moments where that's really difficult. And certainly celibacy, you know, I think, again, I, I, I'm, I'm young and it's exciting, you know, but there would definitely be moments where it's like, wow, not having a wife and family, that's going to be hard. Moments, gonna, it's going to be lonely and difficult. So you still struggle with that? Um, it's, I don't think it was about ever like not struggling with it anymore. I just wanted to make sure it was what God wanted. Okay. You know? And it's, it's not like struggling with actually being celibate. It's again, yes. you know, the continual, um, the continual recognition that like, okay, I'm giving my life entirely for the people. This is not about me. This is about union with Christ on the cross, you know? And that's so life giving. Um, I think there's, there's so much about that that makes life worth living. You know, celibacy isn't about loving less. It's about loving more in a lot of ways. Now you were this generation's type of priest where, you know, you YouTube, social media, a lot of people know you for, for being really into new technology and all that being on social media and all of that. What do you think makes this batch of how the priests of this generation are going to be very different from priests in the past? Um, well, you know, the Holy spirit's always, uh, always responding to the needs of the times, right? So mm-hmm. um, hopefully that can be reflected, um, you know, obviously in the priesthood and how religious are living things out. 
Um, so God kind of gives, gives, hopefully gives you the priests you need for that time. And we have, we have uh, unique, these are unique times that we're living in with unique challenges and the church needs to have a unique response to it. So um, I think we're all trying to do the best, the best we can to take what, what we've gotten from the church, you know, historically um, and to do the best we can to apply that now in the current situation. So uh, I'm excited to see, you know, just my, in my class, these are, these are good guys who are, who are priests and guys coming up in the seminary. These are solid guys, you know, so I'm really grateful to have that, you know, in the church right now and excited to see what they do. So you're, you're a quite a young priest. I mean, you're, you, when you were ordained, you're pretty much younger than the normal ordination age, right? By a few years. Yeah. Yeah. Generally speak. I mean, 25 is the youngest you can be in terms of church law. And so I was 25, um, which used to be more common now. Like we talked about before, if a guy goes nine years in and comes straight out of high school, usually he's going to be 27. Um, so it just kind of depends. So you were right there on the, right there on the yeah, cutoff. Slid in. What, what challenges do you face being so young as a priest? You know, I don't think there's a lot of drawbacks to it. Um, I kind of thought, honestly, like I look young. I thought I would show up places and people would be like, yo, you're a real priest or whatever. But they mostly just see the collar and it's like, oh, hey, father. You know, it's like I'm actually mostly surprised by how not surprised people are. <laughs> or at least they don't show it on their faces. Maybe, <laughs> maybe internally they feel a little bit more. Um, but I've never had a situation where anyone I think was like... Yeah, dismissive or disrespectful or something because oh. I'm young. You know, in fact, I felt the opposite. It's pretty incredible. I show up at a parish with 10,000 people and I'm 25 and everybody's automatically calling me father. Uh-huh. You know, like father, father. You know, it's like wild. I was at the gym a few months ago and um, there was this guy there and he asked if I was using a machine. I was like, oh, no, I'm not. And he, and he kind of looked at me funny and he was like, father <laughs> and, and i uh, i was like son no, i'm just kidding i didn't say that but uh i was thinking like somebody else watching that unfold uh-huh. like i'm just in my gym clothes right yes um was like this this like middle-aged man just referred to this young 20 something guy you know as father like that what is going on here <laughs> you know it's like um it is pretty incredible so um even though i'm really young uh i felt like um you know it's been a huge gift so you don't have gym clothes with a collar on it? I don't know. Some like, guys have that. I don't. Oh, know. really? They have those. Yeah, they have that like was a, a black joke, shirt but... with a little with a little white mark on the top. Oh, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, you can get those. So, what is what are the rules for you? You know, wearing your your collar? Do you have to wear it all the time? Like, you know, you what is the? Yeah, no, you don't have to. No one's checking up on us uh-huh. to make sure you are. Um, I, I want to wear it because it's what I am. You uh-huh. know, so many Catholics in the world are undercover. That's pretty much every lay person's undercover in some way, you know, which we need. Um, but it's good to have some people who are who are showing it publicly. Okay. You know, so um, I pretty much wear it all the time unless I'm at the gym or you know just at home. Is there a rule that family. you can't wear it at the you know while you're doing certain things like jogging or what you know? No, I think you totally could. It would just like it would start to smell pretty bad after a while. <laughs> I think you know it's it is black and it's Houston. So, um, but I think if you sh- if we show up at an event with the cardinal, everybody wants to make sure they've got theirs on. That's really important. Outside of that, um, it's kind of up to you to hopefully want to do it. What's the dynamic like with you know you being such a young priest and then let's say older priests or older parishioners. What, what is that like? I think it's, it's been very, nothing but positive, you know, for me. Um, I, I have so much respect for older, like Monsignor Borsky, right? The guy's been a priest for 50 something years 
And uh, it's just incredible, his faithfulness, you know, like he has seen so much good and bad Uh and he's stuck with this, you know, like that's just what I want, you know, to be able to be as faithful to the priesthood as he's been to it. You know, and all these, all these Catholics we see, you know, in the pews, these are people who have seen the church go through a lot of things, good Mm -hmm. and bad. They've seen, they've seen all these aspects of life. And this is where they are and this way they choose to be. So I know I have a lot to, a lot to prove still, you know, a lot to still accomplish. And I just hope I can, I can be guided well in that by these, these people who have proven it. Do you, do you have people walking up to you or even just, even priests, like older priests, you know, do they give you advice? Do they give you tips or, or anything like that? Um, yeah, certainly. I mean, I asked for it, right? Like what uh-huh. advice would you have for a, uh-huh. for a young priest? You know, and I always appreciate that. A guy told me recently, like, Hey, make sure you pray and make sure you stay humble and make sure you stay joyful. And I, I thought that was, that pretty much covers it, right? Stay close mm-hmm. to Jesus, stay humble and stay joyful. Is know? there any other bit of advice that you, that you really remember? Um, yeah, there was a priest in seminary. He told me, uh, make sure that you meet people where they're at, but then make sure you take them somewhere. Mm. You know, I think that's a pretty good model for a parish priest. Be with the people, be with them, talk to them, get to know them, but make sure you're taking them somewhere. Make sure you're taking them to Jesus and you're not just hanging out. Like that's not why, why we're called here is just to hang out with people, like hang out with them and then, and then take them to take them to the Lord. So you said that a lot of preparation goes into your homilies and you're known for having quick, straight to the point homilies. Is that intentional or does it just come out that way? What, what is your thought process when it comes to, you know, talking or thinking or, or planning out your homilies? Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I, um, I didn't think too much about preaching till pastoral year. Like I said, confessions and mass, like Eucharist was really my focus. Okay. But on pastoral year, we had a few events when I was helping out stuff and speaking. I thought oh, I should really get, you know, kind of figure out this preaching thing. And so I started a big Google doc. I just call my homily, homily tank. I'm always putting quotes in there or spiritual thoughts or, you know, old, old reflections I've preached, just trying to build a good database of helpful information that's been helpful for me in the past that hopefully will be helpful to others. So I try to always kind of have that in the forefront of my mind. I try to look at the readings as much as I can ahead of time. So as I'm kind of just living, you know, I'm kind of thinking about what would maybe apply to different things. Um, and then I spend a lot of time praying, you know, a lot of times in the chapel, I'll have my laptop out and I'll just be typing out ideas and thoughts about homilies. And what I try to do is like, you know, it's not like I, I'm like, okay, I got myself 30 minutes. I'll write my homily and now it's done for me. It's like, maybe it's five minutes and maybe it's done. It's like, Oh, that was, that was it. Like, that's what I wanted to say. That's good. Or maybe it's going to be four different holy hours throughout the week that I'm really trying to pound out something good, you know? So um, I don't put a time limit on what the Holy Spirit's trying to do. And I, I keep going, I keep digging until I get something good. You know, it's, it's a lot like fishing homilies, you know, like you're not sure how much, sometimes you go out there to fish, you throw in the line, you get something big and you're good uh-huh. for the day. Sometimes you have to keep going out to get something special, you know? So um, in terms of preaching briefly, you know, growing up, I just never heard <laughs> anyone say like, man, I wish that homily had been longer. You know, you don't hear that much. <laughs> so I just figured, hey, maybe it's helpful to keep it short. But I don't, I'm not ever trying to make a point about short homilies. I just, when my my thoughts concluded, then that's the end of the homily. Um, I don't want to add fluff to it. So, in, and in most cases, when my thoughts finish up, it's about four or five minutes. So, that's kind of how it works out. So, when you're talking about making homilies, it kind of reminded me how people speak about writing songs. Mm. Sometimes a song just comes to you. Sometimes it takes a while. Now, we know you as a musician, 
could we talk more about your how you write music? So is this something that you've always done as a child because you had all that free time as a homeschooler or is it something that you learned later on? Yeah. So I started taking piano lessons when I was pretty young. I didn't take them very long, but I got to where I was like comfortable on piano. Okay. Started taking guitar lessons when I was about 10. And then about a year after I started guitar lessons, I started writing songs. It was just kind of natural for me. My dad always wanted, we always asked about me playing like other songs. Like he liked Johnny Cash a lot. So he's playing some Johnny Cash songs. And just for me, even at like 10 or 11, I thought like, let Johnny Cash play his songs. You know, like we have recordings. He plays them better than I would. You know, I'm, I'm going to play my own songs. And so that was just kind of natural for me to, to kind of start to write music. My first song was about our dog, Daisy. Not a very good song, but... Uh, Do you still remember it? Oh, Yeah. I'm not going to sing it now, though. <laughs> I won't make it. <laughs> oh, I didn't bring my guitar. Oh, bummer. Um, but they got, I, hopefully, a little bit better after that. And uh, yeah, it was something I kind of just naturally, like you were saying, like it just, you, you can't really choose when it comes. It just, I just get expired sometimes and start to write music. Um, when it comes, you know, I'm just kind of, I just kind of let it go. So. When did you feel yourself writing like a whole lot of music? Was it during. Was it during the the time that you were in the seminary or was it mainly, it just it always happened that you wrote a lot of music? It comes in spurts. You know, I don't actually spend much time playing music. It's just kind of when I feel kind of inspired, I'll go to it. Um, I wrote I quite a few songs in high school. Um, and so my dad has been real involved with the pro-life movement and uh -huh. um, is on board the directors for the Houston Pregnancy Help Center. So they were looking at like trying to do a different event than just like a dinner. So he thought like, hey, how about you do like a, like a concert, like a benefit concert with some of your music? So we planned out this concert and, uh, you know, we advertised, had about 300 people come and raised, I think 60 or $70,000 for the Pregnancy Help Centers. And um, after that, I kind of thought like, okay, I'm done with music. Now I'm going into seminary. And what I've always found is like God, when you, when you really give your life to him, it's not like he takes away who you are. It's like, no, he called you. He actually makes you more of who you are when you're serving him. So I thought I was kind of done with music, but um, that the two summers later, we did another concert. I think we had um, like 450 people at that one, raised, raised a bunch more money and that was a lot of fun. And um, so I kind of just kept writing music for that concert basically. So each year since then we've continued to do it. Um, and it's been, each year it's gotten, I think more fun. It's gotten bigger. And so who organizes the concert? So, um, Houston Pregnancy Help Centers is the one who kind of helps us to, I mean, that, that's the one we're raising money for. Yes. So they help with some of the logistics, but it's mostly just kind of like <laughs> me just kind of planning it, you know? So it's you doing a lot of the work. Um, well, like obviously with the music and everything, right? I'm writing the music, yes, I'm yes. organizing the band, we're doing the practices. I'm in constant communication with the venue about like what the sound is going to be like and the stage set up. And we do get a lot of help with the Pregnancy Help Centers in terms of like logistics for the crowd and things like that. And my dad does a lot of the fundraising. Um, but yeah, it's a pretty small team overall for a, for a pretty big event, hopefully in the end. So how do you get the musicians together for, yeah, the, for so your concert for life? 
we've had, it used to just be kind of me and then I brought somebody else on we've kind of gradually added and now it's all priests and seminarians, which is pretty cool. Um, so each year, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge challenge every year to say, okay, like when are you guys going to be available? When can we do this? And I recognize each year it's, it has been a different group and going forward, it will probably always be a different group of people because it's just kind of have to work with who's available, you know, at the time. Um, but it is pretty cool. I mean, these guys are great musicians. Are they mainly from our area? Um, not really. So it's guys who have either come here to seminary or guys who are from here. But like last summer, we had two guys from the San Angelo diocese who came down. Great bassist, great violinist who played with us. Everybody else, I think, is it was from here. Do you have like a list of priest musicians? Pretty much now. I mean, it's not super long, um, but we have what we need, you know, so far. So we'll see what it looks like going forward. How do you get in the band for those, you know, <laughs> let's say you, let's say we've got seminarians who in a couple of years, they're like, Oh, I want to be in father David Michael's concert for life. <laughs> hey, we always, always looking for people. So more than welcome, reach out, please. Is there an audition process or not really? I mean, usually word of mouth, you can kind of tell if somebody maybe has the chops for it, you know, or I've, guys I've played with before or seen played. So, so what is the, what are the requirements for the priests to be in? Um, just the if we, there's a need for the spot, okay. um, and if they, you know, they're kind of good enough, <laughs> I guess on the on the instrument proficient to play it, um, we don't have like a complicated audition process or anything. We're do thankful you, that how, guys. How are. much do you practice before the actual concert? So it's interesting because um, because of our schedules, usually it's like concerts Thursday and we start practicing Monday. Yeah, we I would think that it would Monday, be diff- Tuesday, yeah. Wednesday, and then put on a show. Wow. You know, it's wild. Wow. Wow. So now this concert, have you, how much is a archdiocese involved? Not at all. Or, you know, or this is something that you just do on your own. Yeah, exactly. So we wouldn't put any liability on the archdiocese okay. like that. We're not af- officially, you know, affiliated with them. Um, okay. Yeah. It's really just some, some priests and uh pregnancy help center getting together to do something, something good for their good cause. Have they ever said anything to you about the, the archdiocese? Have they just make sure you don't do this or, you know, have they ever no, said not anything? Really. I mean, obviously, you know, they, they ordained me <laughs> to try and hopefully not do anything stupid. <laughs> so, um, and that goes for every mass, but I get up in front of there and now we're live yeah. streaming and I need to make sure I'm, I'm being careful as a public figure always, <laughs> you know, especially these days, everything in the dark will be revealed in the light. You gotta be a person mm-hmm. of integrity. So hopefully with the concert too, obviously if the Cardinal ever, ever told us anything, we would do whatever he said, you know? So as a, a, you know, I always would check with the vocation directors as seminary and like, Hey, is this okay to be doing? They would say, okay. So I always wanted to make sure I was not doing anything underhanded or something. So now you've got, you, you, you make a lot of music, you release videos sometimes on social media, music videos or, or any of these uh, types of things. Do you ever have any, um, anybody from the archdiocese or the priests come and tell you something about it? Um, no, so not to the, not, not up to this point. Obviously we, we have social media accounts and we can use them. And mm-hmm. especially with now with, uh, these days, a lot of, a lot of priests now are posting things. We got a lot of live stream masses and stuff like that. So I think it's really positive. But again, if they ever told me anything, I would, you know, do whatever the Cardinal says. Mm-hmm. So do you have now, actually you've told me something like this before that some people, they don't they're not too keen on your social media presence or things that you do on social media. Could you tell me some, 
something about that? <laughs> um, I had somebody commented on one of the videos and it was a bunch of really positive comments, right? Uh-huh. And this one person just commented, lame, <laughs> <laughs> lame. It was just one word. And um, so I, I just commented about, hey, no worries if you didn't enjoy the video. Uh-huh. You know, God bless. It's not for everybody. And um, so that happens sometimes, right? Not everybody's going to enjoy it, and that's okay. Um, Do you ever get anybody saying, oh, this is not becoming of a priest? Yeah, I got a couple of those. I think it's yet yeah, this is unbecoming or not fitting for a priest or something. And um, what I would say is like, that's a totally... Um, you know, everybody's entitled their opinion, but that's a, a completely subjective, you know, like what's becoming of a priest has been pretty clearly laid out by the church in terms of like first uh-huh. my promises to obedience mm-hmm. and celibacy and um, all these things, like these things that the church asks of me. And, you know, if I'm, you know, having fun in a video, I don't think that's, that's a, that's a bad thing. You know, um, I'm always trying to be very prudent and be careful. You know, whatever you put online is, it's kind of out there for the, for the world to see. So you want to be, you want to be smart. And I'm always, I always send my, my videos to lots of people before I post them just get everybody's thoughts on yeah, it. Just to make sure nothing in there that I, I miss, I misread or something there I was missing, you know? And so. you know, to each his own, some people prefer Latin mass. Some people, you know, prefer other, you know, so yeah. it's, it's that type of thing. You can't make everybody happy, I guess. I have no problem if someone doesn't like my videos and if they need help from me as a priest at any point, I will be there to help them. You know, do you get people giving you songs? That happens. Sometimes people want to collaborate on songs. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's just time wise, it's kind of hard to make that happen because of your schedule. Yeah. Yeah. So since you've become a priest, your schedule has been really extremely busy, I assume. There's there's a lot going on in a lot of different directions. And what's tough, I think, sometimes is you think you have time that you don't actually have because something comes up, whether that's an anointing for somebody or someone just has to meet with you now because they're going through a crisis, Uh you know? So a lot of times I look at my my schedule for the week and I'm like, oh, this will be okay. And then it's like by Friday, it's like, (laughs) this was crazy, you know? So it happens. Um, But yeah, I enjoy, I love ministry. So I like, I like being busy. So it's sort of like being like the president, right? You've got a schedule in the morning, then all of a sudden by 10 o'clock, it's out the window (laughs) because so much has happened. Is that the way it works? Yeah, which makes it fun, right? Like every day you never know how it's going to turn out. So, Is there something about you that the parishioners of St. Faustina or any of the other churches that you've been at that they don't know? Any Mm. special talent, ability, or any favorite food or something like that that you'd like them to know that they don't know anything about? (laughs) I got to be careful saying my favorite food around here. Uh, These people- You're going to get overwhelmed with it? They're so generous. I have to be. Yeah, I've learned my lesson. Or food that you don't like. There you go. Something like that. Is there anything that you- You'd like the parishioners to know that they don't uh, know? Anything that they don't know about me. Um, I don't know. That might surprise them perhaps? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I have to think about that. I I mean, I do, like you mentioned earlier, I do like to go by Father David Michael. I like both. Okay. That's a helpful thing for them to probably know. Um, Also, maybe a story I tell sometimes. When When my brother... I was probably like four years old. My brother was carrying me one time in the street. It was like a gravel road and he dropped me and I hit my head on the street. Oh boy. <laughs> and I got a small like rock stuck in my forehead. Okay. And you know, we went inside and my mom said she cleaned it up and she was like, going to take me to the doctor. But like, it, it was a really busy day. <laughs> so she didn't quite make it to the doctor. And the next day um, she did go to the doctor and the skin had already grown over the rock. 
Oh, wow. And the doctor was just like, hey, at this point, like, it's not a problem. Just like, leave it there. Okay. So to this day, I still have a rock stuck you have a in rock my in your forehead. forehead. Yeah, right there. You can like, actually like, feel it through the skin. So wow. I guess that's the thing I want the people of St. Faustina to know about me. So everybody's going to be looking at your forehead now. I know, right? Now that they know this. On this rock, I will build my church. <laughs> yes. So here at St. Faustina, do you have a set like tour of duty? Or as the parochial vicar, do they say this many years you're going to be here and then we're going to reevaluate? Or they just put you here and then we'll see how it goes? Yeah. Yeah. So there really is not a set term. So it usually is anywhere between like one and four years. It's a pretty safe bet. Most of the time it's two years, um, but it can't be three or four. So um, who knows? We'll see what happens. I'd like to stay here as long as I can. I do love being any, here. Do you have any feeling that they're going to send you somewhere else? <laughs> um. Like a two-year term would probably make sense. Yeah, two okay. years would probably be what we're looking at. Um, so I'm kind of behaving as though, you know, it's a good chance I could get moved in in July of this of this next year. Um, but hey, if they give me another year, that'd be awesome. If they do move you, where do you think they would move you? Ah, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. Is there any preference to a type of parish that you'd like to go to? Not really. No. Um, again, I mean, the chances are it probably is going to be a slightly bigger parish just because of the need. If you're going to have, uh, I'm not going to be a pastor. I'm going to be a assistant priest. So probably be somewhere bigger. Could even be a place that one of my classmates is now where we kind of just switch over or move. Um, but I, I really don't know. So some people, like you said earlier, some people said, oh, we were really hoping for Father Ryan. Was his sickness, did that play into the reason why he wasn't? Did they, anybody ever say anything about that? I don't know. I really don't know what the personnel board um, was basing their kind of decision on. Um, I do know he loved the people here. You know, he loved being here and the people here loved him. Oh, yes. Um, so, and I know he's doing great things over at Prince of Peace right now, which is awesome. Um, I'm, I'm thankful to be here. You know, it's, you don't really know why things work out the way they do. Um, but you know, the Lord's working through however it is. So there's no chance of like you and him getting together and approaching the archdiocese and saying, Hey, could you just swap the two of us or something? <laughs> there's no, who knows that could happen. I mean, I don't think we would approach them, but it's possible. Yeah. They mix everybody around and he ends up here and I ends up. So there's here. no way you can request that a couple of years down. I mean, you could request it, but I don't think they would really. <laughs> They'll probably look at, yeah. What's this request? Thank you so much for your opinion. Oh. So what are your, your goals for your time here at St. Faustina? Yeah. I mean, as a parish priest, you know, saving souls, getting people to heaven is what you're all about. So I want to hear, I actually made a list. I mean, pretty early on, like what are my priorities here? And obviously like the sacraments, number one, I want to say mass for people. I want to give them Jesus. I want to offer the Lord's forgiveness to them. I want to preach, you know, homilies that stick with people, homilies mm -hmm. that people can remember and like hopefully be positively impacted by in their lives. Um, outside of that, I want to be a father for people, you know, get to know them, talk to them you know, be hopefully be a source of encouragement, um, be available, you know, be there, be present. Um, it's tough because a lot of that is kind of abstract, right? Like I'm not counting the number of confessions and, uh -huh. you know, able to add up all the grace I've given out. But I trust that like if I, if those are my priorities and I focus on them, that when I finish, I'll have done what I, what I, what I came to do. So if you are moved out of here, St. Faustina, now we talked about you being very media savvy with, you know, social media and, you know, having your talent as a musician, are there any 
of those types of positions for priests in the archdiocese? Like, is there a head of social media or, <laughs> you know, a priest that's in charge of th- that type of thing? It's an interesting question. At this point, like, no, um, there's, you know, priests in certain roles at the archdiocese, but those are pretty uh, administrative, right? You know, not so much social media type stuff. But, uh, and I think honestly, I wouldn't want to do um, something out of the context of parish ministry necessarily, right? Like social media is most fun when you're with people at a parish, you know, like even the videos and stuff, it's way better in the context of parish life. So even though it makes it way more difficult to actually have time to do that stuff because you're busy with the parish, it also makes that stuff so much more interesting and fruitful and keeps it alive when you're in ministry with people. So years down the line after, you know, the move you from St. Faustina to another parish or wherever you end up. What do you want people of St. Faustina to remember about your tenure here? Yeah. Um, I want them to remember a, a priest who loved them, right? Uh, that's, and hopefully express that love through um, always being willing to hear confessions, being willing to talk um, uh, by, you know, faithfully saying mass by trying to preach the truth, you know, that's what I want. Somebody who loved him. You know, hopefully somebody who was an image of Christ. What kind of advice would you give young people, um, you know, young boys and girls who are considering entering religious life? Yeah. Um, obviously stay close to Jesus in prayer. I mean, that's the most important thing. Your, your vocation is going to be God's will for your life. And you're going to know God's will a lot better if you're close to God. <laughs> um, so to make sure you have a solid foundation of prayer um, and to not be afraid to ask questions, you know, to talk to people about it, you know, to research, to read. The other thing I would say is like, whatever God's will is for you, it's going to be a lot better than you think it is. Like God's will for your life is never disappointing long-term. There might be moments where it looks disappointing, but it's always going to be better than you thought it would be. Um, God is always going to take you deeper. We have a God of of abundance and more and surplus. And uh, what he's looking for the most is hearts that love him. Um, he doesn't need, God doesn't need more money or more time or more food. What he like thirsts for is like souls who love him. That's like why God came in the person of Jesus and suffered and died was to like get us to love him. Like he wants us to love him. And so if you can be that for the Lord, you can be somebody who really loves him. He can do a lot with your life. Now we talked about your social media presence. Could you let us know where they, where people can find you on social media, YouTube, Facebook and all that? Yeah. YouTube. I think it's just father, David, Michael Moses. Instagram is father underscore David underscore Michael. Um, you can find some of the links at my website, just father, David, Um, what else is there? Facebook. I don't even know what the tag is, but if you, yeah, if you just search father, David, Michael Moses, it should should pop up. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us and sharing with us all of your stories. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome that you guys are doing it. Hopefully it'll bear a lot of fruit for the community. Oh, you know what? One thing I wanted to do while you were here, since you were, I I, I forgot to do it early on in the interview. I was like, okay, we've got a young hip priest that's here. I got to put on some sunglasses <laughs> and just so I kind of fit in with you there on the you screen. Go. Okay, just, Yeah, I forgot my sunglasses. All right, the cool father, <laughs> David, Michael, Moses, thank you so much for being with us here on the show. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast.